Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings and welcome to Under Consultation, a podcast guide through the UK video game shows that aired in the aftermath of Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I'm being terrified in both directions. And who's got two thumbs and spent every lunchtime in the library? It's me, Ash Versus, scientifically accurate. This episode of Video Game Nation aired on the 1st of November 2014. FIFA 15, would you Adam and fucking Eve it, is top of the video game charts. Megan Trainer is all about the base at the top of the pops. And Brad Pitt in Fury is top of the UK box office. If you think it can't get worse, it can, and it will. The dying's not done, the killing's not done. I promised my crew a long time ago I'd keep them alive. I was afraid you were dead. Where's the rest of Third Platoon? We're it. I started this war killing Germans in Africa. Now I'm killing Germans in Germany. Been with these fine gentlemen for years. These troops get by you. We're all dead in the water. All we got is you. The deals are peaceful. History is violent. We're still in this fight! Still in this fight! Now! This is a film I'd completely forgotten about to the point of I'm not actually sure I knew it existed at the time. When it came up, so you know, I was looking at what the number one film was. Annoyingly, this actually breaks up 
what would have been quite a fun topic to talk about. Because the week before this was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the week after this was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Michael Bay one. The Bay, yeah, the Bay Formers version of Turtles was uh, number one of the box office. And Fury is just in this one week break between that, uh, that film being number one twice. On the plus side, the fact it's not Ninja Turtles and the fact we're already getting to talk about some of our favourite things later in the episode, it at least means that hopefully for us and maybe for you as the listeners, this episode will breeze along a little bit more because we have literally just finished recording last week's episode and the final tally was three and a half hours. We've no idea what that will be edited down to. No, it was big. I like Fury is a film I had completely forgotten about until I saw it. And I was like, Fury, what is that? Clicked into the Wikipedia link, saw the post, and I was like, oh, man, I remember Fury because I saw Fury at the London Film Festival back in 2014 as part of like my, my press duties. This is a period of time where I am heavily in film i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna say journalism because i was not a film journalist but i was certainly a film critic i i that was my job i i reviewed movies online and and was paid to do so like 2013 was a real big year for me 2014 was when i built upon that year 2015 was when i made it my full-time gig and i got to do that for for a year and change uh before i wanted to buy a house and therefore i had to go and you know, get a proper job. But like 2014, 2015 were really big years. I saw so many movies at the cinema. I think it's in like 2014, I clocked in like over 200 films I'd seen uh, in the, the pictures, either at press screenings or just in my spare time. And Fury was a film that I wasn't hugely like into. I, I wasn't excited to go and see it. I kind of, you know, I like Brad Pitt enough, but I had this real kind of like a, a slight vendetta against this movie. Because this is a period of time of Shia LaBeouf being an absolute prick. And the story from this movie is that he went full method. Oh, no. He didn't shower because you wouldn't have showered while you're in this tank going across the, you know, wherever they're going across. He didn't brush his teeth. He didn't do this. So apparently, like, just stank and was, like, quite unpleasant to be around. And I remember writing my review of it at the time. I could probably find my review because it's probably still up online. And none of it matters a job because his teeth look as dirty as Brad Pitt's do in the movie. And Brad Pitt brushed his teeth. Brad Pitt probably just chewed on an Oreo and didn't rinse his mouth out earlier. And boom, dirty looking teeth. Let's have a look. Is my review of it still online? Speaking of Brad Pitt, I've been looking through the Wikipedia page on this because, again, I do not remember anything about this. And what I just can't get past is, like... Okay, I know you had nicknames in the army. And so, sure, we've got Norman Machine Ellison. We've got Trini Gordo Garcia. We've got Grady, not repeating that word, Travis. But then we've got Brad as Don War Daddy Collier. And I've got a couple of thoughts, one of which is War Daddy? And also... How have we not had a professional wrestler thus far who also uses the name War Daddy? Uh, Professional wrestler Wardlow, his fans refer to him as War Daddy. And they have released t-shirts with War Daddy that he has endorsed. I stand corrected. (laughs) It's not an official gimmick name. No, it's not. No. But also, I'm thinking of Wardlow and I'm like, yeah, he's a War Daddy. 
I mean, what a cast this movie's got outside of the names you've just mentioned there. I forgot, like, Michael Peña's in this movie, John Berthenol, hello to Jason Isaac. Yeah. You, you can tell where I am at my film criticism era as well, because I've literally written in my review, hello to, in brackets, Jason Isaacs. It's just, I, I gave it three stars uh, for anyone who's uh, curious about the movie. Uh, so it's on par with the Batmans. <laughs> uh, I wrote here, when one is going to make a war movie, it's important to make sure you know what tone you're going for. You can either look at the Second World War as the worst of humanity that it was, or pose your characters as American war heroes who valiantly walk through enemy lines and show off how awesome and American they are. Fury, the latest from David Era, however, feels like it can have its cake and eat it. It flips from graphic and violently realistic portrayals of the horrors of war to a rather hackneyed account of a group of soldiers who fight off Nazis single-handedly against all odds in a valiantly triumphant fashion. And then I, I have a bit of a puppet Shia LaBeouf in this as well for his not brushing teeth. Uh, and I conclude here, Fury's biggest issue is its baffling tone, as if it doesn't know what it wants to be. For all the good that Aya does with realistic action and set pieces, and despite the great performances, his script is bogged down by Hollywood cliches that remind you that this is just a movie. Even when the stakes are at its highest, it follows a strict predictable line which ruins a lot of tension and atmosphere. The balancing act can be done well, but Fury doesn't quite manage it. For all its flaws, it's hard not to recommend it, though. It's a balls-to-the-wall drama that never holds your hand in terms of violence, and the leading performances are spelled binding. The movie sags in the middle with a scene that starts off well but then overstays its welcome, but overall Fury is a solid movie with a lot to shout about. Tonal problems and Laboose idiocy aside, Fury is a pretty darn good war flick. Three stars, an official rating there by Luke Owen. And I will say, Aya did really go to insane lengths, you know, that still allowed for personal grooming to make an accurate film. I mean, he shot in England because, hey, guess what? We've got a lot of World War II shit still knocking about. There's a lot of tanks and that. Also, uniforms. Also, just lots of supplies. Lots of ways to make this as accurate a movie as possible in its historical setting. And it's a shame, therefore, that I'm going to assume that the studios got into the script. That's probably They can't influence the production yep. design, but they can earn those executive producer credits. Yes, of course. Yeah, like I, I just remember coming out of it being like, I, I, I think that was that was fine. Like it was, it was pretty good. And I, I think even people I was speaking to at the time that was walking out the the, the BFI London Film Festival screening were just like, yeah, it was fine. And this would have been, I think, the year before we had our first possible fleeting encounter in person because 2015 would have been Turbo Kid at Fright Fest and That's we know right. we both went to see that. We were there at the same time. Yeah, so there we go. Passing like shits in the night. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, bass, bass. Uh, and I, I quite like Megan Trainer's All About the Bass. I think it's a, a perfectly good little pop ditty. I agree. We go back to the 90s and we have lots to say about everything. We get to 2014 and other than the fact you wrote a review of the film, it's kind of like, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, and I mean, I wasn't really listening to music at this point in time. Aside from the fact like... I was, I, just not music from the time. Yeah, that's true. Working from home. Yeah. Um, and my dad was basically semi-retired by that point, so he just had the radio on all day. So I did hear some of these songs basically through osmosis because my dad was like, you know, just tidying around, pottering around the house and stuff. So I did hear, the, you know, this song and I do remember it being a pretty big deal. It's, but it's a, it's a fine little pop ditty. I just cannot believe that. The fucking FIFA is number one again. <laughs> 
If it's not fever, it's bloody pro-evo. It's like a fart that follows you around the room, really, isn't it? Looking at some of the other bits of TV news, on October 18th, Martin Clunes and Neil Morrissey perform a sketch as Gary and Tony from the 90s sitcom Men Behaving Badly for Channel 4 Stand Up to Cancer, the first time the characters have been seen on screens since 1998. Do you check your bollocks? No, I just say stuff. Some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't. Never look back. No, I mean, do you actually check your actual bollocks? Oh, my actual bollocks? No, no. I get my girlfriends to do that, and in return, I get to check their breasts. Works really well. That sounds great. Yeah. Don't do it in Pret-a-Manger, though. No? Easy mistake. Yeah. Just thinking there, you know, that they've not been on screen since 1998, but neither's Dominic Diamond on Channel 4. Where was his stand-up to cancer bit? Probably cut for tonal reasons, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, given, let's not forget, the first instance of us talking to Dominic Diamond in any official capacity, we heard about AIDS cats. We certainly did about AIDS cats. On October 31st, the BBC says it will not issue an apology over Top Gear Argentina. Mmm. Yeah, not issuing apologies over Top Gear. That aged like a fine <laughs> murder. Uh, speaking of things that age like a fine murder, on November 7th, Channel 5 airs episode 7,000 of Neighbours. And yet here we are in 2023... And Neighbours has been cancelled and then brought back by Amazon. And, cynical man that I am, I'm fairly certain that they knew the final episode would not be the final episode by the time it aired. In fact, I suspect they thought, well, all the extra press we're going to get about this is sure to get Bezos or Netflix or, I don't know, Hulu or Pluto? Pluto's yeah, probably Pluto, a thing. Probably, yeah, Pluto, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apple. Apple. No, Apple would not bring back Neighbours. <laughs> They only bring back classy shows like Fraggle Rock. <laughs> Sunday morning survival tips from Challenge. To cure a fuzzy head and carpet tongue, you need one remote control, one television, and one sofa. Then lie back and watch the telly. Welcome to Video Game Nation. That tells you what games to play when you finish watching the telly. That is literally exactly what I'm trying to say. Touch. Now I'm all right. Get a dose of Video Game Nation. Sunday mornings at 9.30 on Challenge. So, uh, Video Game Nation is our uh, topic du jour for the week. And this is this is kind of an interesting one for me. I kind of alluded to this at the end of last episode, but, you know, over the years that we've been doing UCP, we've become quite friendly with some of the people that worked on Games Master. Yeah. You know, Rick Henderson is someone that we speak to on a semi-regular basis. Amazingly, and I, st- I, I know we both have had this thing, just exchanging mem- messages with Dominic Diamonds. Like, it's just, that's just a thing that happens now. Yeah. He's a lovely lad. He's a lovely I, guy. Never meet your heroes unless your heroes are as awesome as Dominic Diamond. Frankie came to our last live show that we did. Incredibly flattered by that. Absolutely. Rab joined our Discord to, to just to say thank you for, for the coverage we did of the last series and stuff. It's, it's, it's very nice that we've been, you know had sort of very friendly encounters with the people who've got uh, tied to Games Master Law. But this is going to be the first review of something where I am friends with the people that made it beforehand. The show's director is one of my closest friends. I go on holiday with him. I was there. He was. I was at his wedding. He was at my wedding. Our kids hang out together. We go on holiday together every year, more or less. I go around. Well, I, we we took the day off last week to go and watch the new Indiana Jones movie. Mm. He's a very very good friend of mine, and people who are appearing on this show are people that I know and are quite friendly with. Dan is someone that I've been quite friendly with over the past years. Chris 
I'm working on a show with Chris at the moment that's going to be airing on one of the uh, YouTube channels that we do. And I, I mentioned this to them. Like I, when I saw uh, Adam last week, I was like, you'll never guess what show I'm reviewing for the podcast next week. He said, what's that? I said, Video Game Nation. And he said, oh, really? Oh, I can tell you some things about it if you'd like. And I was like, yeah, go on then. I mean, one, very cool to get some behind the scenes info from people that you know. Two, we better fucking like it. Otherwise, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm fine. But it's also, this is the show that I've got not just the most connections to because I know the people that made it. It's the show that I've watched the most of. I, I didn't really see when games attack much. I didn't see Gamepad. Thumb Bandits only ran for the one season. I didn't really you know, remember much of seeing bits. This thing, which we, you know, we've covered over the last few weeks and stuff. But this, is, this was a, a big watch for me. I had moved to London and my wife and I had bought our house together in 20, late 2015, yeah, late 2015. So I got a Virgin box and I never had one of them before. So I would set Video Game Nation to record on, you know, using the sort of the TiVo functions and stuff. So I would then every Saturday, I would sit down and I, with my breakfast and I would watch Video Game Nation. And I would then text Adam about it and let him know what I thought of each episode and stuff. And it was just, for me, it was like a very cool thing, particularly because at this point in my life, I'd gone out of my film critic world and I'd gone back into working a real job, quote unquote. So I was kind of like vicariously living through Adam and the people making the show to be like, oh, that's what I want to do. Like this is like it, it felt like a really good aim for me to be able to kind of get back into that world. This is probably the first time this has really happened to this degree on this podcast. The episode of Video Game Nation that we're watching today is the first time I've ever seen Video Game Nation. And I have been racking my brain of what was I watching between 2014 and 2016? because I was definitely watching television of type and I'm fairly certain I was watching Challenge. But this one just passed me by, despite the fact that I watch other output of various people we're going to talk about today. Like, it, it literally just blows my mind that this one completely passed me by. And so I am overjoyed that you've got some behind the scenes goss and facts to throw in because otherwise I'm like, I'm shit out of luck on this one. <laughs> so I've just got like nothing but nice things to say about the episode because I do actually really like this episode. And, I, yeah. and, I, and I've always liked Video Game Nation as a format, not just because you know, my friends made it, but like because I think it's a really good show. Not to want to jump to the end of the episode before we've even discussed it, but what I will say as a precede is I also genuinely like this show with the caveat of it's not a show that I watch and think I'm going to rewatch this episode, but it is a show that I watched and immediately went, I wish I'd see more of this. I mean, thankfully, the YouTube playlist I used, there's a lot of it out there. And in fact, I've already got a couple synced to my phone that I may be watching on the journey home. Yeah, yeah it was when uh, you know I was chatting with Adam about this last week and he just meant to like, oh, yeah, a bunch of it's still up on YouTube, isn't it? And he knew exactly the playlist loader that had put all of these up. Because I was like, yeah, he just, I don't know why, but he's just got loads of them available. Because um, I believe... Very grateful he does. Very grateful he does, yeah. Because I think, like, the Jinx hard drives, as far as I can tell, just don't have them anymore. Like, I think, oh, I think, I think a lot of it was all just wiped. I mean, in particular, the original version of Video Game Nation is completely lost to time. Like, that is just deleted from history and will likely probably never see the light of day. Because this debuted the end of March 2014... And yet, 
by the time we get to the episode we're talking about today, which is only six, seven, eight months later, the show is not only a completely different show, it's been a completely different show for a chunk of time. Yeah, pretty much. The There was, a, there was an original version of this show that was very different to what this version of, of Video Game Nation is. And amazingly, I mean, just you know, the circles that you sort of you move in, the director of that is also a very good friend of mine, Simon Longden, who's done some stuff with us on, on WrestleTalk, which is the, one of the YouTube channels that I, I work with. And someone else who was at my wedding, and I, you know, I, fingers crossed I'll be able to go to, to his in a few years' a few years time, and been on holiday with him and Senator, working with him on another project, funny enough, with Chris, who is on this episode here. Uh, they sort of pitched us an idea, and we're kind of running with it. And I was mentioning him about, funny enough, next week's episode. And I happened to mention Video Game Nation. He was like, oh, did you know that I did this on the original version? I was like, actually, do you know what? I didn't. It's never come up in conversation between us. But he was able to kind of tell me, like, what happened with that original version. What he told me was the basic premise was to try and copy the vibe of Soccer AM, but video games. The hope was to have genuine coverage of the latest releases and events, but if comedians were our reporters, then we'd have a sort of anarchic funny lens. Worst case scenario, I thought someone might write some tweets about how we were trying to be when games attack, and that would be a huge compliment. Yeah, that, I can see that being a huge compliment. But the reality was, within two episodes, I'd attempted to write an absurdist review of Bioshock 2 from the perspective of a horse and filmed a bunch of non-sync shots of me in a horse's head in the Bush Theatre. I'm really sad that's all lost to time, <laughs> yeah. because just as a concept, Bioshock 2 reviewed from the perspective of a horse? I mean, that is my jam. But I yeah. imagine it t- it's, it's one of those things of it will either land or you will walk away from the screen. And I'm guessing by the fact that this is now 2.0 we're going to be talking about. Yeah. The walk away was what happened. Simon says here, like, Jinx at the time, and basically the whole time, had signed really bad contracts with the host, which was Tom Deacon and Emily Hartridge, who sadly passed away a few years ago. He tells me that they shot the whole thing in the Ministry of Sound. Weird location to choose, and not one that benefits them either. I was going to say, is this a 1997 PlayStation promo video? Because that's what I think of when I think of video games and the Ministry of Sound. I think of the PS1. Yeah, I know. Maybe, maybe that's what Simon was going for. With maybe it as well. And he said sometimes up to six episodes were shot in a single day because they had to make 50 episodes per series. Jesus, that's gamepad levels. It started off with a crew of eight, but by the fourth shoot, the whole thing was done almost on my own to save money. Anyway, I was making the show, and at one point. Steve McNeil of Go 8-Bit, who's also you know, featured on this show, and John Robertson, who Simon had brought on to work with this, had both written their own segments on the show, which saved me from writing the whole thing, and I'm fairly sure Steve and John were paid basically nothing. We had to constantly stop filming so that Ministry of Sound could clean before the next club night, and during all this time, we would all talk about how this could be better. It was not their fault, but Tom and Emily just weren't right for the show. Tom actually would have been great alongside a more knowledgeable voice. Julia Hardy, Eva Lockhart, and Lucy James were around and had previously or still were working at Jinx. Adam had been on sabbatical and I had had enough at Jinx and decided to leave at the end of the series. But I basically collated a bunch of things we'd all been saying and we had some meetings about what it should be and I left Jinx and then Adam, Chris Bond and others took it and ran with it. So basically they made this version, realised it wasn't working and in between was just like, here's what this show what could be, handed it off to the new team and that's what became the version of Video Game Nation that we have now. So you start with Tom Deacon and Emily Hartridge. Uh, Tom Deacon was also replaced 
partway through that initial run, uh, Nathan Caton. Caton. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then John Robertson, who we already have mentioned, he was a guest. So he was the only kind of real crossover between the two. But also Dan Maher and Aoife Wilson came in. And these are three faces that I'm very familiar with. John Robertson and Aoife probably more than most. And that's purely because... John Robertson, I know from Darkroom. The Darkroom is the critically acclaimed cult comedy that mixes gaming and improv into one unique choose-your-own-adventure game show. The crowd picks options off a screen and tries to escape my mind-bending dungeon. If you succeed, money. If you fail, <laughs> you die, you die, you die. And also his stand-up career. And I've watched and read a lot of Eurogamer content. Yeah. Uh, when I spoke to Adam about you know the original version of this, he said it had its fans and had quite a few people that didn't like its loose and casual take on video games. So the show was relaunched in 2014 with a new hosting roster that was originally led by Dan and John before introduce, before including Anthony and Aoife to the cast. This version was a more straightforward take on the video game magazine show with each episode themed around a Game of the Week which headlined the show. These Game of the Week segments and the rest of the show links were usually filmed on location, which was aesthetically tied to whatever the game was, i.g. a wrestling ring for the wrestling game episode. Dickens World was used for Victorian-style Bloodborne and Assassin's Creed. Rochester Castle was used for Game of Thrones. A go-kart track was used for Mario Kart 8. To kind of, like, make this much more of a, like... Yeah, it, it felt made a bit more prestige, I guess, in a way, rather than just doing it all up hog or all up loading bar. Yeah, which they also did use... A lot. And in fact, one of my great joys of doing this episode was going, been there, been there, performed there. Uh, in fact, when Adam was giving me like episode recommendations, Mario Kart 8 was one of them because he just said, filmed on an actual go-kart track while it was closed. Dan was basically just racing around the track for a couple of hours and we filmed his links. Assassin's Creed Unity because it was shot in Paris during Paris Game Week. Top 10 Horror Games was filmed at the London Dungeon after hours and that was pretty spooky. Wrestling Games because they did a crossover episode with WrestleTalk TV that was also airing on Challenge at the time. This week on Video Game Nation, it's the Pro Wrestling Special. Snap on your spandex and check into the SmackDown Hotel. We're visiting the history of wrestling games, counting down the top 10 ones ever made and doing fearsome battle with the cast of WrestleTalk TV. Will video game knowledge and manual dexterity triumph, or will it be the one, two, three for Chris Bond and me? All that right here on Video Game Nation. Was this before your time? This was, yes, because this is the TV era. So I like, gotcha. I am loosely connected to this bit. I, I was doing the, the early YouTube video bits and bobs, like the rest talk news as that existed then, which was really just there to plug the TV show on Challenge, as opposed to what essentially becomes the other way around when once like the de- all the deals come to an end and stuff. I think it's a great shame that you weren't involved in this because I would love to sit here and review you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a weird one because they did do like, you know, a crossover episode where they had the WrestleTalk TV presenters appear on Video Game Nation and we did an episode of WrestleTalk TV where we had Video Game Nation presenters on there. And I know that John was on an episode because he's also a wrestling fan. And from what yeah, I remember, yeah. he was quite a chaotic presence and it was quite a difficult episode to shoot, if, if, if I remember correctly. Which just really stands to reason. And the other one that he recommends is Alien Isolation. Because he writes here, filmed an in-game survival challenge while the participants were being distracted by someone in an alien cosplay outfit. Scared the shit out of Gav Murphy when he arrived and we were filming B-roll with the woman in the alien suit. 
Apparently, like, when he was telling me about it, Gav Murphy was genuinely scared. Oh, you could see. That's what I, I was trying to work out whether Gav was playing up for the camera, because, like, uh, Gav is someone I know pretty well as well, funny enough, um, doing a lot of press junkets and stuff, which he was attending, because he was, you know, writing for movie websites and stuff. But also his podcast, Regular Features, I was a big fan of, which Steve Hogarty was also mm. on, and he's in this episode. But I was like, I remember the first time I met Gav at a press screening of Iron Man 3, and I was like, oh, big fan of regular features. And he shook me and he was like, oh, thank you very much. I'm not an actual twat. Like, that's just, it's just what I do on the podcast. <laughs> I, I just was, play one on TV. Yeah, it's like, I just, that's just what we do on the podcast. And I was like, I, I assumed as much. <laughs> he's, he's actually a genuine sweetheart. But so I wasn't sure if Gav was just playing it up for camera. But apparently, no, he was absolutely shit scared during the filming. But we've kind of telegraphed which episode we've chosen. Now, we've not gone one for one of the early episodes and we've not gone for like one of the first episodes of version 2.0. Because, Luke, we've both had quite a hard month or so. We've had a lot going on, both to do with under consultation, some very long, difficult records, and also in our respective day jobs and personal lives. So I looked down the list of episodes and I saw one that featured aliens and then I skimmed through it and I saw it also featured Ghostbusters. And that's when I thought, let's have a nice episode. Yep. Let's have an episode where we can talk with some considerable joy about the games and subject matters featured therein. And I am so glad that when I actually watched the full episode, I just thought, oh, this is going to be easy. Yeah, this will be a nice, easy record for us because the other one I suggested was like, well, they've got a year-end wrap-up episode and that worked out quite nicely for us when we did um, uh, Ultimate Gamer. But then you made the very astute point of like, we're, the Charlie Brooker episode is going to be a long one. Maybe you want to take a bit of an easier record to follow up on. I was like, true. Also, I won't have a blues clue about half the games they talk about. So let's just pick an episode where I've at least got something I could say about it. And also on the first part... Three and a half hours. <laughs> it ended up being, yeah. It's official. Video games are the biggest entertainment medium on the planet. Thousands of titles. Millions of players. Billions of dollars. But that's not important. Because it's not the big numbers that make gaming great. It's the experience. You already know that, and so do we. This isn't another show just trying to justify gaming. What's there to justify? It's awesome. It is. No, we're here to cut through the noise and speak from our hearts about the games that we love and even those that we don't. Because we love games just as much as you. From Wii Sports to eSports. From the platformer to the puzzler. All are welcome in this Video Game Nation. So we start the show intercutting between both regular hosts and guest hosts as well. We see Aoife in there who, as we've already kind of covered, writer, TV presenter, video producer, works for Eurogamer, BAFTA. She she was on BAFTA with um, Frankie Ward mm -hmm. multiple times. Lovely stuff. We see Dan, who's like 20-plus year veteran of the video game industry, both on the journalist side and occasionally on the production side as well. And we see John Robertson, who is a living embodiment of the forces of chaos, both personally and professionally, comedian, streamer, author, actor, writer, dreamweaver, visionary. Uh, to quote himself, manic hurricane man. <laughs> and they're just talking about what this show is and what video games are, about how big they are, how there are millions of players, how it's such a rich industry, both in the people and the moolah, but that's not what makes gaming great. 
John Robinson says, you know, what is there to justify about gaming? It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. He's right. Yeah. And then he just cuts this over. It is. It's like, yeah, we all know that we like video games here. So what we're looking to do is just invite you all in to our video game nation. And it is a really nice way to kind of set up exactly here is what the central thesis of this show is. And now, boom, here's your game of the week. Yeah, this opening. And keep in mind, as I said, this is my first real viewing of this show. I just thought immediately... I'm going to like this. Yeah. They would have to really, really try to fuck it up. And I'm not saying I agree with everything that's said in this episode, but I appreciated they were doing something of their own. They weren't trying to be Games Master. They weren't trying to be When Games Attacks. They weren't trying to be Bits or Thumb Bandits or any of the other shows we've covered. They weren't trying to be Gamesville. Thank God. Mm -hmm. They were being gamers talking to gamers. This is probably the most gamer-centric show that we've covered that isn't Consolvania or Video Gaiden. Yeah, it's because it comes at an interesting time. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks back, but when we finished Games Master, we literally went from 1998 into 1999 with Bits, and then straight into 2000 with Thumb Bandits, you know, 2001 with Thumb Bandits, straight into 2002 with Gamesville. And we were in this sort of like very centric period of time of just like every show we were doing was a year after the previous one had finished. Then we had a big three-year jump to uh, Charlie Brooker's Gameswipe. And now we've got a big five-year jump to this. And I suppose you could look at that and be like, well, that's the rise of YouTube. And how, despite the fact that video games are this huge entity that are sort of like, you know, it's this global phenomenon that are way bigger now than they would have been in the 90s or even in the early 2000s when video games were thought to be the hugest thing then. But people aren't consuming video game information through traditional TV means anymore. They're doing it all through online. They're doing it on YouTube. So you need to find a format that fits TV, but also like because of you know challenged repeats and stuff, doesn't date either. And I think one of the clever things about Video Game Nation, about just focusing on one game, means that it doesn't date as horribly as a show would if you review five different games. Mm. It can be seen as a snapshot in time of that particular game or subject matter, which this very much is. There is definitely amendments or kind of like coders you could add on to this episode, but it does stand the test of time quite well. And also, I don't know what their budget was like. I'm going to assume by what you said earlier, quite small. Yeah, I don't think Jinx were paying like huge amounts of money to, to, to make these shows. I think it was probably like slightly bigger after, you know, the original version ended. I don't think it was quite... I, I don't think Adam's production run on this was as tight. The, the purse, string, purse strings were not as tight when Adam was directing as when Simon was directing. The locations they've chosen, particularly for this episode, and the way they've shot those locations, make this show feel really tight and really modern. You could show an episode shot the same way today and it would still work. Yeah. You might play with lighting a bit more, modern cameras, you might be able to do a bit more with the shadows. There's a few shots that might get a few better jump scares. Mm -hmm. But I was watching this going, yeah, this looks really tight, really tidy. I mean, the first sequence we get, we get Aoife, who is in the vaults underneath Waterloo Station. I know this well. I recognise the corridor she's walking <laughs> along. I've been to shows there. I've worked shows there. 
And knowing the subject matter of the episode going in, I'm just like, that's perfect. Yeah. Now, unless you're going to go and shoot in some pump rooms that may have been used for some other shows, this is great. This is nice long corridors, atmospheric. Uh, the only big issue I can see is you might have to pause occasionally because of rumbles from overhead. But this is a great location to shoot in. And one and of the things I can tell you about Adam, he loves Alien and loves Aliens. And, and like he is a he's a fan of those movies. And so I think a lot of that kind of sinks through into the style that he directs this episode with and the lighting choices that he makes and things like that to try and make this location they're using here almost feel like the Nostromo in certain ways, trying to make it feel quite industrial. You know, particularly like when you have the xenomorph things at the end, like I feel like Adam's glee in being able to direct a bit of like xenomorph action on screen. You're walking down a darkened corridor. The sound of your footsteps is drowned out only by the thumping of your heart. You have a torch, but you're too terrified to turn it on. So every snaking silhouette you see looks exactly like the thing that's hunting you. Because speaking of the xenomorph, as we get towards the end of Aoife's opening narration, and she's like, you have a torch, but you're too terrified to turn it on. In the back of the shot, up from the depths, raises an alien warrior. I will say that because the pedant in me is like, well, that's not the alien from Alien. That is one of the alien warriors, the drones, if you will, from Aliens. Mm. But it's a much more common costume to find. And I did find myself looking at it going... Do I know the person in that costume? Because I know a few alien cosplayers, although normally they're wearing collars. Mm. That just seems to be a thing to try and kind of disarm it for kids. Is they're like, well, we're going to have an alien, but we're going to have a pink collar on them and a leash because then it's not quite so horrifying. It's disarming it a little but I couldn't quite identify it. Yeah, I, I did mean to ask him about, like, who it was. Or if... Uh, in fact, I, I, could, I could text him now. I'll find out. But this opening narration continues, and it is the perfect summary of not only playing Alien Isolation, but also of being a character in Alien, or possibly Aliens or Alien 3. It's that kind of fear of the silence and the noises, the creaks in the silence, talking about things of a hissing pipe in need of a janitor's touch. It is a beautifully written monologue, absolutely perfect. And immediately it made me want to watch Alien or Aliens or Alien 3 or even Alien Resurrection and or play Alien Isolation. I've got it on at least three platforms. Adam has just texted me back. He can't remember her name, but it was her own suit. She made it herself. I, I mean, also credits we for as well. And, you know, the, the rest of the host will have this as well. This is not like I, th I don't think this is all done on also cue. This is just, you know, camera facing at them, them learning their lines and then presenting that to camera, which is not an easy skill. Yeah, it's really, really well done. Although I will say that the alien, unlike its on-screen counterpart, is quite sedate. Just lurking there, almost like it's standing on a mark. <laughs> <laughs> Since first bursting, quite literally, onto cinema screens in 1979, H.R. Geiger and Ridley Scott's Xenomorph became the embodiment of humanity's fear of the unknown, of deepest, blackest space. But in the years since, due to numerous games, films, and even cuddly toys, its reputation as a cold, killing force of nature has been undermined. We get some, you know, clips of the the movie itself, while, mm, the space jockey. Yes, while uh, you know, Eford sort of talks us through the the original movie. If you aren't aware of of you know, H.R. Uh, Geiger and Ridley Scott's masterpiece of a film. 
you know, I love the. It's become the embodiment of humanity's fear of the unknown. Honestly, you couldn't write a better tagline and put it on the damn film. But, uh, you know, uh, like a lot of films from the 1980s, or, you know, in this case, the 1970s, toys. Because you're like, hey, but what if for kids now? I mean, lest we forget, there was a toy from the original Alien, a big glow-in-the-dark Kenner alien with a punch-out mouth. Hands down, there have been some misguided toy lines. I think that is an early doors out-and-out winner. Yep. Because, okay... Aliens and the potential TV series that never was for the Space Marines. I can see that. Robocop, they found a way to kidify Robocop. Same with Rambo. Rambo wasn't that far from G.I. Joe anyway. It's fucking alien. Yeah, it's weird. John Hurt's <laughs> stomach explodes after he gets violated by a vagina penis monster. I think if the only thing I would uh, slightly disagree with with uh, Aoife's assessment here is this idea that there have been uh, awful games. Look, okay, I've said on this podcast previously, I loved Alien 3 on the Mega Drive. Perhaps that's also nostalgic love for it. Maybe I would have a different feeling to it if I went and played it now. I might not do it. I'd actually played it not that long ago, and I still think it's great. But Alien Trilogy on the PlayStation was great. I, I, if you want to count the AVP game in there as well, which I think you certainly could do. Yeah. Uh, is a great game on the PC. And yeah, Alien Trilogy was really, really great. But then we've got some of the later games, including a few Game Boy games, Game Boy Advance games. And then there is the last game before this. Oh, yes. And, and I think that's what a lot of this stems from, These, you know, this idea of bad alien games. You could certainly, like, you know, look back at history and be like, these are all the bad alien games. But really, you just need to look at, well, the last one. Stephanie Sterling's arch nemesis for a little while. Yeah, you've got Colonial Marines. You've got a comic line that kind of lost its way a bit at that point. You've also got the AVPs, the Requiem. You've got Prometheus. Yeah, Prometheus. An alien Covenant. It's, not, it's around the corner. I think it's 2016 Alien Covenant, so it's around the corner. The, but you, Prometheus did the damage. Exactly, and you're in the mess at the moment with um, the Alien 5. Neil Blomkamp's. Neil, that's it. Neil Blomkamp's Alien 5 with Sigourney Weaver and Michael I Bean and everything. I will never forgive Ridley Scott for that bullshit. I cannot believe Blomkamp went back to Fox. He was like, he swore off Fox after Halo because like Fox fucked him over with Halo. And he was like, I'll never go back and work there again. But he did. He took a risk to go back there so he could do Alien. And what happened? Fucked him over again. Problem was, is that Fox wanted to make an Alien movie and he wanted to make a Prometheus sequel and the two just didn't match. I could probably find my review of that movie as well because I did not enjoy that when I went to the press screening of it. One star or two stars? I think it might have been two. I'll, f I'll find out. Hold on. Two stars. Two stars. Two stars. So that's the same as one of the Nolan Batman films? I wrote here, in space, no one can hear you scream, but they will hear you yawn. I went back and rewatched Prometheus recently. Other than some of the really stupid shit, some of which is down to editing scenes out that would have actually made other scenes make sense, I thought Prometheus would be fine, genuinely, if it didn't have any ties to Alien. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If Ridley Scott had directed this thing under a pseudonym and never mentioned Alien, it would have been fine. And likewise, Covenant would have been a fine movie with a bit heavier editing, lose some of that ending and remove any reference to Prometheus. Like, you want to make them two separate films. It is a mess. But so you, to your point, like this is a franchise that is in a mess at the moment. I am optimistic, cautiously optimistic for the film that just finished wrapping. Yeah. 
because whether you like his Evil Dead movie or not, Fede Alvarez made a good movie. Mm -hmm. If you don't like it compared to the previous Evil Dead, that's fine. But as a film, it's good. Look, I thought I was done with uh, with Predator films because there hasn't been a good one since the first one. Uh, and that was a long old time ago. Let's not have the Predator 2 fight again because that <laughs> is a good film. You just haven't grown up to realise it yet. I thought I was done with the Predator franchise and then that new one came out. Oh, the, great. Which was great. Which also didn't say it was a Predator film. Yeah, I, and I really, really liked it. See, Ridley, that's how you fucking do it. Oh, do you know what? It's so funny when my, one of my co-workers came into work the following day after watching it and was fucking furious that he'd watched that movie because he'd read it as because it's a it was a disney plus movie a 20th century fox original he thought that meant it's an original movie <laughs> <laughs> and i was like well it is an original movie. it's an original predator movie and he's like that's not what that word means and you know it but Eva says that basically between those sequels and the awful games questionable mm, well definitely yeah, yeah. on the games the xenomorph has lost its bite and all i could think at this point was I've stood on that floor that, uh, <laughs> that she stood on and got asked to turn the music down because people were stamping their feet so much to the karaoke and dancing about that it was causing dust to fall into the drinks being served <laughs> at the bar underneath. Amazing. But yeah, they are basically, when it comes to games, they're talking about Alien Colonial Marines. It was a Sega game, 2013. It was based like a lot of video games that came out in the intervening years on Aliens rather than the first or the third or I think everyone just ignores the fourth film at this point and there were a lot of problems to do with this people were put on the project they were taken off the project because it was from Gearbox and they were also working on Borderlands and then Duke Nukem Forever Ooh. and when it came out it drew some controversy for a number of reasons uh, some of which was the pre-production footage looked a lot better than the finished game so did. and the other of which is the AI was bollocksed. Yeah. And that, to me, has the best story for Colonial Marines because, on the PC at least, like so many games, the community came to the rescue. They worked to improve atmospherics. They worked to improve various other bugs that weren't being addressed in the official patches. They worked to rewrite how the aliens behaved. And then, in 2017, a modder discovered a single typo in the game's code that is the reason the AI for the aliens was completely fucked. It didn't fix all the other problems with the game, but it was a single typo that both the other modders hadn't caught and the actual original makers hadn't caught as yeah. well. This game upset people so much that two players fired a lawsuit against Gearbox and Sega. I was going to say, like, he actually like, went to court. Well, nearly, you know, went to court. Like, lawsuits were filed over this game being as bad as it was. I, and Stephanie Sterling, I, I mentioned earlier, like, you know, they have had a bit of a, a, a war against Randy Pitchford because, like, they said, like, he lied to my face. Like, he lied to me. When I asked him a question, he said, it's, it's this. He lied to me about that because a lot of this game is just, it was one thing and then it was another. And so, you know, you can then put a lawsuit there again being about false advertising, more or less. I have got the game still, and I've got it on my PC, and I've got the various mods and the patches and the fix installed. And also, because on modern PCs, you can just stick everything to Ultra. It's fine. It's a fine game. There are worse alien games out there. 
But it was taking aliens as the inspiration, I think is it's a smart move for a video game because you've got multiple aliens to play with then. And one of the fun things about playing video games is killing things, you know, certainly in a, in a shooter. You know, it's Alien, even Alien 3, which is a movie that is about one singular alien, the video game has multiple aliens in there because otherwise you'd just be chasing around, you'd be being chased by one alien the, the whole game. But what Alien Isolation does is it takes inspiration from the original alien where it is just you and some others against one seemingly unstoppable hunter that you do not see coming and is smarter than you and better than you in every single way the perfect organism alien isolation stars amanda daughter of personal hero of mine ellen ripley as she searches for traces of her mother's ship the nostromo 15 years after it was last contacted her search brings her to the Sevastopol, a recently decommissioned space station. It doesn't take long for Amanda to figure out that all is not well, though the game does take its time to set the scene before introducing you to its main antagonist, the titular extraterrestrial. Whilst there are other enemies on the station, the alien is unique in that it cannot be killed, and if it sees you, it'll eviscerate you instantly. There aren't many games I can recall that leave you feeling completely vulnerable whilst in possession of a flamethrower, but it speaks to Isolation's clever design in that that's never much of a comfort. See, this alien is smart, she's unstoppable, and she's completely terrifying. And Aoife gives us a brief rundown of the plot, and this is where I think this game is one of the smartest games because... You can do prequels and you can do sequels, but one of the great joys of the Alien franchise is each film is separated by a vast expanse of time. And we already know that Ellen Ripley had a daughter. And would the daughter of one of the most badass women in the universe just sit at home while her mother is missing? No. no. And so this is the story of Amanda Ripley. And whilst this narration is going on, we see this game and I'm sat there thinking, by God, this game still looks great. I mean, you can play it on the Nintendo Switch now. So clearly system requirements have dropped, but the atmosphere is there. I'm looking at this and I'm going, that's alien. Not aliens, that's alien. alien. Yeah, singular. And it's, I, I own this game. Uh, when I got my PlayStation 4, this was like an early purchase. Same. For me, which like, I'd been recommended it because I got my PS4 quite late in, it, in the, the life cycle. So I was like, you've got to get Alien Isolation because you love the Alien films and you'll have a great time playing this game because it is like playing through Alien. Like, it's, it's incredible how much it feels like that game. And I, I did play it for like an hour or so. I did like, you know, a handful of like save points and, and this, that and the other, but I never really fully got into it. And I'm kind of annoyed at myself that I've now probably left it too late to, to be able to pick it up. But it is still sat there. It's sat upstairs. I could always just plug it in. And if I ever have an evening to myself, giving it another go. And actually watching this episode of Video Game Nation did make me want to give it another go. Same. Because I really do feel like I missed out with Alien Isolation. And what's annoying there is that I fucking own it. Same. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple times. I think I may have bought the Switch version on sale and it may be sat uninstalled, but in my Nintendo library. This episode did make me want to go and play it. Because this game is not your traditional survival horror game. When we think of survival horror games, we're thinking of things like Resident Evil or Silent Hills, where there are monstrosities out there, some of which are for a while unstoppable but sooner or later you get a bazooka or a shotgun or you know flamethrower or something or in the case of alan wake a really big flashlight and you can then do some damage but this is alien 
This is the first alien. This is the alien that can in theory survive in the vacuum of space. All a flamethrower is going to do is piss it off. Yeah. And, or, and let it know where you are. Yeah. <laughs> and I think whilst this game got massive critical success, huge critical success, still sold in excess of 2 million copies, they were expecting more. And I do wonder, did it lose some people because they were like, I can't kill it. Yeah. I've just got to survive. I want to kill the aliens. I want to play James Cameron's aliens. That's not what this game was. This game is actually one of those pure definitions of survival horror. It's not about beating the bad guy. It's not about, like, a body count. It's not about finding different ways to mow them down with a pulse rifle or firing a grenade inside the double jaw. It's about surviving. And this game has one of the cruelest fucking tricks of any game I've ever known in that if, you're, if you've got a Kinect or the microphone built in to the PlayStation 4 joypad and you're hiding from the alien in a room and you cough, the alien will turn and look at you. And the first time that happened to me, I'm like, oh, you motherfuckers. <laughs> in fact, I don't think I coughed. I think the doorbell went. Yeah. It was like a case of, no, that wasn't me. But anyway, this game was by Creative Assembly. It's so good on atmosphere. It's so good on looks. They've modelled it beautifully after the original. For all its achievements, for all the love it receives here, it never got a sequel. It did get some very cool say, DLC. I was going to say it got DLC, didn't it? And stuff and like almost like you know de definitive versions of it and expanded yeah. versions of it and stuff like that, right? And weirdly, the in-game cutscenes were used to make a YouTube series that aired on IGN. Hmm. Plus, it had a tie-in book, which I've not read, but I have listened to the audio book of. Yes, that's and that, right. That was actually pretty cool. The tie-in media around this was of a much higher quality than I think a lot of people expected, particularly of Alien at that time. At that time. But some of the DLC you mentioned included basically the ability to relive the first Alien movie with a few changes, but a lot of the original voice actors came back and it was... It's great. Yeah. I really am going to go home and play I, this now. I Luke. think that's what I've got because I'm pretty sure because like, I've, I've bought... The Nostromo Alien. edition. That's it. Yeah. I think that's the Nostromo edition is the one I've got because that's got like everything in it. It's got like Alien Isolation and all the DLC already on there. Anyway... We can't spend all of our time in the vaults. Let's go to the heart of gaming. I think what's terrifying about the alien is you just can't predict what it's going to do. Like the Creative Assembly have just embedded this thing's brain with all of these AI routines and they never quite play out the same way twice. So one time you can hide inside a locker and the alien will just stroll right past you. The second time he'll just tear the door off and he'll just pull you out of it. I think not being able to read what the alien's doing just makes him so unpredictable and scary. So yes, what we have now is the, the breakup of this. The way that Video Game Nation as a format is, is that the three hosts have their segments to talk about the game, or in John Robertson's case, talk about the top three that he's made up for this week. But then we have talking heads from people within the industry. So that includes our first voice that you just heard then, Steve Hogarty from PC Gamer, or as I know him from, regular features. Very, very funny man is Steve, a delightful human being. And this segment here is to talk about the alien in particular. The xenomorph, you know, and basically talk about like what the alien character means and what they think of that alien character and why it works so well as a video game antagonist. There are no patterns to learn in this game. The alien will react differently every time sometimes you will be hiding in exactly the same place and you won't move, you won't sneeze, the doorbell won't go and it will just turn and grab you anyway because something else factored in, something you'd done earlier. 
Maybe the door hadn't finished closing when it came into the room and because it's acting differently, its head was turned a different way or it smelt you or, or you were bleeding already. All these different variables. It is still, even now, what, seven years later, more than that, mm. nine years later, some of the best enemy AI I have seen. And the great thing is, because it is a singular main AI, there are other enemies. There are various um, synthetics that you kind of come up against. But because this is the main big bad, so much was put into it. And that's, that's just why it worked. And it's lovely to see them, because they focus on one game per episode, it's lovely to see them just giving this game the time to explain why you should try this game. Yeah. If you compare this to reviews that we've had across the you know the last few episodes we've done, even Games Master, where they're reviewing two games, three games an episode, you can't dive into this much information. Gamesville didn't have the time to dive into this much information because there's other stuff that they need to do. Gamepad and Ultimate Gamer have got the exact same things. But when you have an entire half-hour episode dedicated to one game... That means you can talk about this whole, that one game for the whole 30 minutes. Amanda Ripley is obviously this fleshy, vulnerable human, and the alien is all the opposite of that. It's a weird Freudian sexual uh, entity, which also has giant teeth and a massive tail and can uh, eat you to death. Oh, more heart of gaming, and hey, welcome to the podcast, <laughs> Jane Douglas from Outside Xbox. Crazily, a channel I would have been watching at this point but somehow still wasn't watching actual TV challenge and this show. Yeah, saying that Amanda Ripley is obviously this fleshy, vulnerable human, and the alien is the opposite of that. <laughs> very powerful, very dangerous, very phallic. <laughs> we then have Keith Stewart from The Guardian. Who I think I've met. Yeah, I, I love Keith. He's such a nice guy. Uh, author of the, the, the incredible Mega Drive uh, visual compendium that came out f through uh, ROM number of years back one of the things i love about keith on this as well is that he's the only one who got the memo that this is going out on tv so he's won a tie he's all business he is all in business front of his beautiful row of street fighter 2 cabs up oh there. gorgeous so many of these cabinets still there by the way although different locations yeah absolutely uh, let's talk about yes the the freudian side of of the alien creature penis but yeah i mean when i i did uh I, when i did media studies a levels we did slasher horrors uh, as one of our modules and our teacher was obsessed with phallic symbolisms within horror movies so you know when we watched Halloween, you know, she'd often talk about the the very the very phallic nature of the butcher's knife and the penetration that would then have upon these uh, un, un, you know, unexpecting victims and stuff. And we also watched Alien, which she sort of said, you know, you can classify this as a slasher movie. This is one yeah. singular bad guy that is systematically picking off individuals. We watched like Psycho, and we watched uh, Halloween, and we watched. Alien and Scream, sort of Scream being these sort of like, and here's the ultimate uh, take on all of these these tropes and stuff. But like, yeah, the phallic nature of the xenomorph was something that she would often bring up in in classes and stuff. So it's kind of it's nice to have people still talking about this here in 2014. I think for me, the most terrifying bit about Alien is the bit where like this bald, pink, screaming creature like bursts out of a hole in in someone's body. Um, as a pregnant woman, I do find that quite unnerving. Up next is someone who we'll be talking about more in a couple of weeks' time. It's one Ellie Gibson, who I believe is in the loading bar? Yeah, and is just credited as games journalist. 
Like everyone else is credited to a singular thing outside Xbox, The Guardian, Ellie is a master of all trades and is just games journalist. She's not tied down to any one place. She's all over the show, is Ellie. And she talks about the body horror of the chestburster, which, as a pregnant woman, she finds quite unnerving. And my note is, yeah, I'm pretty certain that's what Geiger was going for. And it's funny as well, because the next time that we will see uh, Ellie on this podcast, she will have had that child. Yeah. And and will reference that fact. <laughs> And, you know, we'll talk more about Ellie in a week or so's time because she has a much more prominent role in what we're going to be covering then. But Aoife here talks to us more about the AI, the unpredictable nature of the alien. Again, says that the alien doesn't just behave differently each time. It will react to your behaviours. If you always employ certain tactics, it will react to those. It's, it's, it's not going to be like meta or, or anything like that that's going to be the downfall of civilization. It's going to be the advancements of stuff like the alien AI. Yeah, I remember, you know, um, Resident Evil 3 Nemesis. One of the big uh, advances in that game from 2 is that if you, the tyrant appears and tries to attack you, just run into another room and then it does not follow you. And then it will just stay in that sort of like L-shaped corridor or wherever you last left him. But Nemesis, Nemesis could go through doors and Nemesis would chase you. And I remember like Tony being like me in those terrifying prospects because now there's no escape or now I'm trapped and I'm really, I'm hurt and I've just saved it and he's outside now. So my save file's now knackered yeah. because he's literally outside the door and I've got no herbs or anything. Alien Isolation is basically the next level up of that level of terror which is that, you know, as Eva kind of talks about, like, you can try various different things, but if you do one thing wrong, you're finished. You try to run, you're finished. You climb up that ladder wrong, you are finished. You have got to rely on your own cunning. The way you survive this game is by outsmarting your attacker. Do you think that's why some people just didn't want to go near this game or didn't get on with it? Because it's like, it's smarter than me. And it's scary. Like, it's a genuinely scary game. It's not a typical game at this point. You know, look at the games that are out at this period of time, which is all action all the time. This mm. is the complete antithesis of that. And I, there's a, it's a very small market that they're going to want to play a game that is this enclosed, I suppose, a word I would look to use, both in terms of atmosphere and gameplay, as opposed to, or you could play, you know, Call of Duty and mow down 50 people in 10 seconds. And also, just to go back to the ending of uh, Video Gaiden, one of those endings, the whole stealth thing where the guy's just stood against the wall and therefore Rab can't see him, would not work in this game. No. You know, that's the Metal Gear tropes. That's the Splinter Cell tropes. The alien would just look straight at you and pull your spleen out through your nose. Isolation is a hard game. It's a stressful game. I had to keep taking regular breaks just so I could keep playing it. Can we say we're truly enjoying something if it makes us this miserable? Players are drawn to these horror games that make us tense and uncomfortable. I think for the same reason that people consume any entertainment or go to theme parks for things that make them feel frightened. It's that adrenaline rush in what you know in some part of your brain is completely safe, but it gives you the opportunity to experience terror and threat and risk 
all the same. Uh, Eva says here, like, it's a hard game. It's a stressful game. She had to take breaks while she was playing this. And it sort of raises the question, why would you put yourself through this? Why would you sink so many hours into playing a game that makes you miserable? I mean, well, the Dark Souls series has basically built its entire <laughs> mantra upon that. When Jane is here is talking about you know, players being drawn to uh, horror games because it makes us feel tense and uncomfortable. My father-in-law often questions why me and my wife like watching horror movies. He can't fathom it because he's like, I don't know why you'd want to spend your free time being scared. Because it's fun. That's what we say. It's like, because <laughs> it's fun. Like, it's, I, I quite like going to see horror movies at the cinema because being in a room full of people, like, I, going to Fright Fest is one thing because that is full of, like, horror fans who are just there to enjoy horror. And it's awesome. I mean, we, we mentioned Turbo Kid before, but Turbo Kid, when there were certain scenes in that and there were just whoops. Yes. And you're along oh, for the ride. Perfect. And it's a great way to experience horror movies. Equally as great is going to a Joe Public screening of a Conjuring movie. Because that is full of people who at a Friday night, let's go and see the latest scary movie. And they just then shit themselves up and just get really scared by it. And they have their own very different experience to what you do. But that impacts your experience of also having fun watching those movies. I mean, why, why play games like this? I suppose there is a point where if you're not getting any thrill from it, if you're not getting any joy from it, if you're just frustrated and tired, then stop. But I would say the same is true of some horror movies. If you're not scared, but you're just repulsed, disgusted or bored, then stop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah. Like, you know, Jane sort of compares this to theme park rides because yeah. you get the same thrill and excitement of that near death and big bucky O'Hare is. But like some of them are dead scary and dead frightening. I've seen Final Destination 3. I've seen how scary those things can be if they go wrong. I've seen Clerks the Animated Series. I've seen <laughs> how they put together. And then funny enough as well, Ellie starts to talk about, you know, that experience of horror films and being scared in the cinema. And it's about that. I mean, she says it's a release of tension. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is not for all horror films. There are some horror films where I'm just like, well, I'm leaving the cinema absolutely wired and freaked out because it wasn't a film with a happy ending or indeed any resolution. It just kind of ended with uncertain dread and tension. But even that can have its own rewards. Did you find yourself, as this episode went on, just, you know, we were making notes, I'm sure, but did you just find yourself kind of sitting there going, yeah, yeah. That's Absolutely. what I'd say. And I really like the, the difference in the talking heads as well, because like Jane offers up, you know, very, very good salient points. And I think Steve is kind of taking it from that point. Keith Stewart in particular is taking it from that point. Ellie is there to crack some jokes along with her great points that she's making. Steve as a comedian is also there to kind of do that as well. So you've got this lovely balance of comedians and games journalists offering up a nice smorgasbord of opinions about a video game. I think it's the same with horror films, you know, horror games, it's, it's about a release of tension, isn't it? It's about, you know, getting all wound up and scared and then screaming or not or whatever. You know, I think it's about sort of letting go a bit. And it's also about, you know, no matter how terrible your life is, at least you're not being chased uh, down a corridor by a faceless nurse wielding a chainsaw. I hope, possibly, I don't know. If you work for the NHS, maybe you are. And we get an NHS joke because, hey, Ben Elton, beer politics. 
I do love throughout this, and I just noticed it at this point, the atmospheric sound as we cut back to Steve, because whilst it is at odds with the burbling arcade machines, bright lights, bright colours behind him, they've just used the atmospherics from Alien Isolation, and it really works. You've got that creaking, that kind of ambient drone. Mm. I, mean, I know I said earlier about like Keith is there to make his very serious points and that, but he then just pops up to be like, it's just a way for us to escape the fact that we're old and fat now. Someone does my, my point I was making about you earlier there, Keith, about you being the serious one in this in this troop. <laughs> um, you, in Resident Evil, when the wolf jumped out, jumps through that window and goes over here, I didn't so much poo myself as leap up so quickly that the poo didn't have time to travel up with me. We then get our debut on this episode of Steve McNeil, someone else who will be uh, a focal point of an upcoming episode. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the pedant around here, Steve. It's not a wolf, mate. It's just a dog. But that is the jump scare. Yeah. When you talk about video game jump scares, uh, whether that be on a TV show or a YouTube show, or whatever it is, almost guaranteed this is what people will mention as one of the all-time jump scares or like the original jump scare. It's not the original jump scare, but it's the one that lives in people's memories the most. Yeah, because it's that dog jumping through the window. And whilst, yes, there is a factual error there, the joke that follows it is so good. It's like, I didn't shit myself, I just jumped so fast the poo got left behind. <laughs> Alien Isolation is a challenging game, but in my opinion, it's a brilliant one. One of the best ones this year, in fact. It won't please players that want something they can actually fight back against, and it may test the patience of those who want something more action-oriented, but as a slice of old-school survival horror, Alien Isolation is the perfect organism. And it's a nice little wrap-up here for for Aoife's kind of section of, of Alien Isolation, which is that it's a challenging game, but it's a brilliant one. And I love that she wraps it up with, you know, the line from the movie, really. It's a perfect organism. It is one of those games that I don't think will ever be truly surpassed because I'm not sure anyone's ever going to try and do it like that again. Certainly not with essentially a prestige property and with a borderline AAA title. There will be indie games that do, and they will be great, but I don't think anyone will have the balls to tackle Alien like this again. Yeah. We've got another Alien game out now. It's based on Aliens. It's a squad-based game. It's actually a little bit of a throwback. It's kind of top-down stuff or two-thirds isometric type thing. My sister's been playing it. Thinks it's a very, very good game, despite a few bugs. But it's also a very safe game. Mm. Anyway, it's time to high def. High five! <laughs> hey gang, high def, high five. Actually, given this is a week of green blood and alien spacecraft, high def, live long and prosper. From the point and click Star Treks where the fun was your crew and the enemy was excitement, to the bounty runs of solar winds and cosmic dogfights of EVE Online. I love sci-fi so much, I'm actually a bit bothered I said live long and prosper back there, because in Vulcan culture, the greeting goes, peace and long life, and then you say live long and prosper. Who's got two thumbs and spent every lunchtime in the library? I love this dude. What more can I say? I love this because it's a great intro as well of, you know, him welcoming to us and being live long and prosper. And then corrects himself like, but really, that is the wrong way to introduce myself because the Vulcan way to do this is actually. And it was just like, I love how like intricate because he didn't need to do that. But he did, but scripts it in such a way that gets it wrong so he can correct himself so he can self-deprecate and be like, I was the nerd that spent all my lunches in the library. <laughs> I saw a lot of us in this guy at this point. <laughs> but 
we also get a lovely little bit of footage from Star Trek 25th anniversary game, which again, I saw that and I'm like, oh, that game has aged so well. It's a great point and click adventure and the CD-ROM version has some passable voice acting on it. And then we kind of move on to other games because whilst this is a one game episode, it also looks at the two factors at play with Alien Isolation. One is horror and the other is tie-in. Yeah. And we tackle them both in quite different ways. And John Robertson, unsurprisingly, is here to take us through the horror. <laughs> so here are three examples of some of the best sci-fi horror in gaming. Turn on the lights, grab a loved one, and don't let them hug your face or else a little version of them's gonna burst out of your chest. Released in 2008, Dead Space puts you in the body of Isaac Clarke, a systems engineer whose body you'll leave very quickly if you're not careful. The plot has you trying to solve a mystery, save your girlfriend and salvage the devastated mining ship Ishimura. So this is like his weekly part of the show where he has his comedic section of the show to look at three games within the topic that they're discussing this week. And we're kicking things off with Dead Space, a game that I know more of by name than actually playing itself. I feel like this is part of that lost generation of games, which we've, I've talked about on the podcast before, where because it didn't have a PS3, there's like a whole library of games that I just I did not play and just sort of passed me by. And Dead Space is one of those games. I mean, if you didn't play Dead Space, you could have played Dead Space 2 in 2011, Dead Space 3 in 2013, or Luke, as of January this year, Dead Space, because they remade it. And I thought, God, that's a bit soon. And I'm thinking, actually, 15 years, it's, it's say, not. We're not that far from it being 20 years old as a game. No, no, the, we're, this we're is, getting it, up there. It's officially retro at this point. Oh, Christ, it is. <laughs> Guitar Hero, uh, also retro, I suppose. Shh. <laughs> But released in 2008, Dead Space puts you in the body of Isaac Clarke. You're on a mining ship. Stuff goes wrong. Starts the trilogy off in the way it means to go on. Lots of horror. More than a few hints of influence from the Alien series. I mean, that is one of the main running themes throughout these games. To a degree. To a degree. Is influenced by Alien or other Alien-related horror does bring up an issue with Dead Space and also a whole bunch of games of this era, which is the NPCs are really fucking annoying. Yeah. My only gripe is that Isaac's two imperiled companions are constantly whining. Ah, oh, I think I can hear something after you've just killed 12 of the things they're scared of. Aside from that, it's absolutely superb. Nine out of 10 head crabs always aim for the limbs. I think the other thing he's got is a, is a good point as well, which is, well, I've just killed a bunch of these things, and now my characters here are telling me that they're really scary. But they're not. I've just killed a load of them. Or the other one is, you kill a whole horde of villains. This used to happen a lot in the um, Dead Rising games. You clear a whole bunch of things that are on the way to your objective. You clear the path for the person you're on the escort quest, because Dead Rising fucking loves escort quests. And you're like, okay, cool. Let's go. And they're like, great. And runs in the opposite direction straight into another mob. Because the game is like, but you've got to rescue this person. And I'm like, but I just, I did, I did the legwork, man. I did the research. Come on, guy. Come on, just cut me a break, game. <laughs> Apart from the annoyance of the NPCs, it's still a superb trilogy. To the point where when the remake came around, my biggest question was, I get why you're remaking it because it's 15 years old and there's no such thing as an original idea anymore. But also, why are you remaking it? But I haven't actually played the remake. Maybe I'll play it and go, whoa, this is actually well worth the remake. 
but it won't be until it appears on Game Pass. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe the, I'll give it a go if I get in like a, a you know cheap sale or something on the PS4. Or with PlayStation Pluses or something. Yeah. If I need to get, I need to get that again. Time now to party like it's 1999 and then shut up immediately before the aliens get us. Our next title is System Shock 2, developed by Rational Games for the PC, OS X and Linux. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Dead Space and System Shock 2 were based on the Alien franchise. They both got dodgy interstellar conglomerates, symbiotes that transform and change humans, and System Shock 2 even has an artificial AI that helps the aliens along. I'm not saying they're rip-offs, I just think Sigourney Weaver may have laid her eggs in the game designers. But a game that was officially retro at the time that this episode was made, never mind when we're reviewing it now, it's System Shock 2! It's time to party like it's 1999, then shut up again before the aliens find us. I don't think I've played System Shock 2. No, me neither. And I'm looking at it going, I really, really should have. I, it, do you know what it looked like? It's, and this is going to sound like such a stupid thing to say, and I fully appreciate that, and I fully apologise for what I'm about to say. It looks like such a great PC game from 1999. What I mean by that is they have got run animations or movement animations, the way that your character bobs along, like Doom had it, Half-Life had it, and you know, like AD, AVP had it, the way that you're do 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 And I saw that, and I saw the, sort of the textures around it, and I was like, oh my god, it's 1999 and it's a PC game. Yeah, I would really like to play this, actually. And I'm, yeah, kind of surprised that I didn't. I was sort of primed for this area. Like, you know, we're not far off my absolute love of AVP. I probably would have really dug uh, a System Shock 2. The rights for System Shock and System Shock 2 especially were a little bit complicated for a while because Looking Glass Studios went nipples north. But Night Dive Studios did produce a remake of System Shock that actually released, much like Dead Space, earlier this year. In fact, only about two months ago. It uh, was developed by Night Dive. It had been in development since 2015 and was funded by Kickstarter. Yay! $1 million. More than that, in fact. Very long development cycle. Basically eight years. And it was delayed because, like some other games we've discussed over time, they developed it in one game engine, and then they went, oh, there's a new version out. We better start again. And we better start again. And we better start again. But it came out to... Mixed reviews? No, actually. Ah. Oh. Destructoid, 9 out of 10. Eurogamer, 4 out of 5. IGN, 9 out of 10. The Guardian, 4 out of 5. Generally favourable reviews. Hey, love to hear that. But I think like Robertson's got a really interesting point here about... Yeah, he's not saying that these are rip-offs. I'm not saying that Dead Space or System Shock 2 are rip-offs of the Alien franchise. But you can tell that they have taken influences from the Alien franchise. And I don't know if there is a franchise on this planet that has had more things take influence from it than the Alien franchise. Star Wars. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe Star Wars, but like, I'm just thinking, Brazilian video games or, you know, sort of science fiction and stuff, the amount of Alien Breed, for example, like, you know, when we did that back in our Games Master Timeline and things like that, it's just like, it felt there were so many games that had the xenomorph as a baddie or like facehuggers as a baddie and sort of taking the aesthetics and style usually of the character designs and just said like no it's just this is just a, gener a generic alien just happens to look a little bit like but that's a pure coincidence thing and just happens to be in a game called alien breed 
it, that's exactly it. Like, I think it is a a lot of people have taken inspiration from Geiger's designs and Ridley Scott's movie and James Cameron's sequel and stuff. I feel like it is. Uh, yeah, maybe Star Wars is the other one of like so many things have taken inspiration. Bucky O'Hare is from Alien and Aliens. Although I do like the visual image of just like, I'm not saying they're ripoffs, I just think Sigourney Weaver may have laid her eggs in the game designers. <laughs> but he talks about some of the interesting games mechanics because, yeah, the creatures stalk you, the weapons jam, the tension is high. You put all of these things together, slap it in space, you've got System Shock 2. Well, Ash, that game was quite retro. You know, particularly for this period of time as well, where we're talking about it. In it's 15 years old. It's 15 years old. I can't imagine we'll go back any further than that, will we? Final game now, and it's that odyssey of space horror that single-handedly crashed the video game industry and produced a landfill that if you were to build a hotel on it, then Jack Nicholson would be haunted by dead Atari 2600s. It's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Oh Christ, you want to talk about real video game horror? Yeah, I mean, I cannot believe I never thought this game would come up twice in our own like <laughs> timeline that we've done this, because we talked about this when we did Starcade. Yeah. Way back when, because that was a game of its actual era. That was period-appropriate reference to E.T. Period-appropriate there. And yet here we are, you know, all these years later, and we're looking back on it now with the decades of hindsight that we now have about this game and the lore that this game has. Like, this is among the most iconic games of all time for all of the wrong reasons, some of them for the fun reasons. There has been a, a very good documentary that was released on Xbox. AVGN did a big parody of this. People always wanted him to review E.T. on the Atari 2600 and he never said he would do it, so he did it for the Angry Video Game Nerd movie and featured a whole thing about going to the desert where they're all buried in this, that, and the other. I think some of this does feel a bit... It, this is the Americanized history of um, the, the video game crash and everything. This is not like this is kind of counter to what Rab and uh, Ryan were doing on Brooker's show last week. Yeah. This is very much the, the established story that we Brits know via American YouTube of what happened in the early 80s with American video games. Developed by one man at Atari in a bid to get the family classic on a home console in time for the 1982 Christmas rush, E.T. was programmed in five and a half weeks. Four million units were shipped to stores, 1.5 million copies were sold, and then, weeks later, around 3.5 million discs were sent back to Atari. Some were unsold because demand wasn't as high as expected, some copies wouldn't shift because the game was so famously terrible, and some were just angry customers giving them back. Atari lost $100 million. It is a great little story, though, very succinctly told, particularly the fact, you know, they 4 million copies shipped, 1.5 million sold, 3.5 million copies returned... You know, the idea was they had one copy made for every Atari that had been sold because every single Atari owner will want to buy this game. That was Atari's logic behind it. Plus an extra, I think it might have been an extra 500,000 for all the extra Ataris they're going to sell on top of that for, uh, for because people will want to play this game. They'll play it around their friend's house and then they'll want an Atari of their own. Yeah. And like, it is... It's incredible, like how many, yeah, the the balls, the cojones. But you would kind of have those cojones when you've got ET, the biggest film of 1982, the biggest family movie, and you've got the biggest home system. 
course this is going to do well for the Christmas 1982 season. There's no way this could go wrong. If only they'd made a game actually worth the diddly dick. Yeah, and it's amazing then when you kind of think about the reason why this game fails is because they gave one guy five weeks to make a whole game and that's difficult to do in and of itself. Even the Oliver twins would struggle with that. But when we looked at Atari in uh, the mid-90s when they came out with the Jaguar and we like looked at interviews from people who were making games for the Jaguar, one of the things that Atari kept saying was like, why are there so many people working on this game? We used to make games with one person doing them. Why do you need eight people making this game? Cut down your staff and give me one person. We made a game based on the biggest movie of the decade that wasn't Star Wars and it was... A game. I'm yeah. sure it was fine. I can't remember. I did a lot of cocaine in the 80s. Did we do okay with E.T.? In all fairness as well, it wasn't just E.T. that killed uh, killed Atari. You know, Pac- it helped. It certainly helped, but like it was that it was the combination of that and Pac-Man. Like those were the games that really killed Atari as a business and, and caused the game crash. Yeah, they fucked Pac-Man. I mean, Jesus Christ. It, it couldn't hold Pac-Man. The Atari 2600 could not handle Pac-Man because it could not have all five characters on screen at at the same time it could not handle it so it every frame just flicks between who is being shown on screen creating this awful flickering effect yeah i mean you want to talk about epilepsy warnings (laughs) it's fucking awful but luke i mean come on there's whole rafts of urban myths youtube videos documentaries is et actually that bad yes you know the scene in the movie where E.T. points his finger at Elliot and says, Hurt. That's what this game does. It hurts you. Remember how E.T. always used to fall in holes? This is a game about E.T. falling in holes, and there being secret agents, and then falling in holes some more. Hurt. Hurt. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, no, no, yeah, yeah fair enough. No, no, I guess you're right there. Yeah, it does sound bad. Yeah. That, that's the things I do like about this, because it could have very easily just been the here's the funny story about the making of E.T. and then, oh, it's in a landfill in New Mexico. But John Robinson actually does what a lot of people don't do when talking about E.T. for the Atari 2600. They tell you what the game is and what happens when you play this game. You fall down holes. You fall down holes. A lot. Yeah. Hurt. <laughs> it's amazing, you know, over the years that there have been defenders of this game, defenders of this game coming out for it to be like, Look, if you actually burrow into the game mechanics, it's not terrible. The game's biggest fault is it does not tell you what those game mechanics are. But if you can watch like some very good YouTube videos, they'll be like, this is how to play E.T. And when you figure it out, it's still not a good game, but it's not the worst game ever made. I think it's certainly the worst hype-to-game ratio. Absolutely. And also... The biggest missed opportunity because this game, it didn't have to be anything special. They could have done, and it would have been really weird, they could have done like a fucking Paperboy or even um, Pitfall. I mean, speaking of falling into holes, yeah, yeah. they could have done a Pitfall thing. They could have had you playing as Elliot to rescue E.T. They could have actually just done some sprite copy and paste. And while they might have got some backlash... They could have produced a game that could be played, but they didn't. They produced this thing. This thing here, yeah. Which even, I think, like, what, decades later, I don't think anyone has been able to hack this into something that's actually good. No, and it is a remarkable thing. Like, you mentioned, you know, 
is it one of the worst games ever made? Like, but I don't think there are many games that can have the accolade of tanking a studio, tanking an industry. Like, like it, it is one of two games that tanked an entire industry for a couple of years in America, at the very least. I, for one, am hoping that the critical success of Alien Isolation means more games that deny us the chance of being an all-guns-blazing action hero. In a fight-or-flight situation with a xenomorph, eh, I know which I'd choose. Speaking of which, I'm going to find a nice dark corner to hide in. I'll see you guys after the break. They've managed to like, make a video game of like a 70-year-old pen and paper game and make it even duller. In the countryside where the weather is fine, it's Ribena time, so get in line. Bottle the vitamin C. You need daily, you need daily, yeah, that's right. Take a jump, take a dive, there's anything to get inside. Ribena, no added sugar, has the same delicious black currency taste with, you guessed it, no added sugar. Our world is changing. From devastating floods to destructive avalanches, you can't stop the awesome power of Mother Nature. But one man will risk everything to test its limits. Ben Fogel discovers whether science holds the key to survival. Feel the full force of extreme weather. Storm City, Saturday, 8 p.m. on Sky 3D and Sky 1 HD. I just want to talk about this Harry Star makes sweeties. I like their hearts because they make me feel loved. And, and also I like the rings. And the gold bears. Because it looks like it's a ring when they go swimming so they don't drown. And then look, you can make a big, big sandwich. We are demanding order tomorrow at nine here on Challenge in Timeline. 
Toys R Us is the place for all your presents. Check out our massive new Christmas catalogue, packed full of great gift ideas. Plus, if you spend over £100 at Toys R Us, you'll get a £15 gift card absolutely free. Enjoy hundreds of slot games at 32red.com, including Immortal Romance and our exclusive I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here slot. And brand new games every month, like Terminator 2, with a jackpot of over £80,000. Just part of the £3 million we pay out on average every day. Join tonight and get £10 free at 32red.com, online, on tablet or on your mobile. Welcome back! Now, it may be based on a film over 35 years old, but Alien Isolation is, technically, a tie-in game. Unsurprisingly, publisher Sega decided not to mention this in the game's marketing campaign. Most people would rather have a facehugger show their esophagus some tender loving than having to sit through your typical licensed game fair. But why are they generally so awful, and what tips can they take from Alien Isolation to avoid their many pitfalls? Well, back from an ad break. Haven't had one of those in a while. <laughs> An actual ad break. And we're back in the vault. And we get to talk about one of my one of my favorite topics of conversation. One of the this is my genre of video game, if ever there was one. The movie tie-in. I'm obsessed with video game movie tie-ins. Particularly like 90s ones. Yeah. And you know, some of the early 2000s ones. It doesn't, it doesn't really feel like it's a thing anymore. And that's a, and I think that's a darn shame. I can understand why it's not, for a number of reasons. One of which is, as we detail here, a lot of them are fairly bobbins. Yeah, oh yeah, they've got a bad reputation. But also, if you wanted to make a good video game tie-in that was released around the time of the film, you would have to give the game makers fairly unprecedented access to the pre-production process. And in today's internet age, and with hackers, and this, that, and the other, has a fucking recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think people are more likely now to just hand over an IP and say, make a game based on this IP. You know, they can give Insomniac the Spider-Man IP and say, like, make us a Spider-Man game, as opposed to make us a movie tie-in for Spider-Man No Way Home. I think the main pitfall of licensed games is that it's, it's very easy for movie producers to see it as an easy way to make money and just employ games companies to churn something out very quickly. I think with the licensed game, the pitfalls are kind of often built in right from the beginning. Like, um, the way it often works is that a movie will be signed and will go into production, and then suddenly somewhere in Hollywood will go, oh, we need a video game to go with this. Uh, but he'll probably do it in, a, <laughs> in an American accent. You're piggybacking on the marketing power behind the movie. And if you're going to do that, you need to come out at the same time, so there's a rush to get it finished. And also, to an extent, these games are going to sell no matter what, because if the film does well, people go home, they want to play the game, and they may not be the kind of person who's consulting a review and checking really carefully if this is going to be a great game. They love the movie, they want to play the game, and fair enough. What we now have are the talking heads from the, the first half, but kind of just talking in general about movie tie-in games and kind of like it's a bit of like a potted history it and a lot of it just feels like you know funny recollections from their time from playing these things uh they don't talk about some of the things that we've talked about on this podcast like the, the difficult second level that's purposely made to be difficult so the rental market but they do talk about some very interesting ideas here you know steve hogarty opens up to be like 
it's a really good idea on paper. This movie's going to be big. This video game industry is also very big. I make a game based off my movie. People go see the movie. They play the game. I get double money. But like you mentioned, the problem comes with, let's not give them any time to make this. Or in some cases, any actual decent amount of reference material or an accurate shooting script or or anything like that, really. Let's just give them some character designs, a kind of like one sheet script summary and maybe they can put in some more accurate stuff closer to the time, like closer to release date, when we've got something that we don't mind sharing. Keith is there to sort of back up Steve's points that he makes, which is just that it's kind of inbuilt from the beginning. You know, this is almost part of the pre-production process of what video game can we have here? Let's get a developer in and we can make this uh, video game tie-in. It doesn't need to be good. It just needs to be out for this date. Yeah. We do also get some amazingly bad examples of tying games being shown in the background throughout this particularly when uh, jane's talking and stuff like that and she just reiterates that hey you're piggybacking on the marketing power behind the movie and if you're going to do that you need to come out at the same time so there's the rush to get finished as we've talked about before and i'm thinking of games i'm thinking back to consolvania and batman yeah fuck, fuck off, off batman, batman. <laughs> And that was a game that was rushed out to appear roughly in time with the movie. And I'm thinking of the Spider-Man games that were as well. The one kind of exception to the rule is a game we'll have discussed in a few minutes is Goldeneye. I was about to say Goldeneye is sort of the, the exception to the rule, really, isn't it? Because it comes out, you know, actually in line with the next Bond movie. I do really like the new Alien game. And actually, I, I enjoyed the original Alien game on the, on the original PlayStation. And I think what they have in common and what so many movie tie-ins fail to do is that they kind of capture the, the feel and the atmosphere of the movies. They're not quite so worried about the narrative or the character. They're just, you get that sense that you are on that spaceship and you are going to be eaten by something quite bad. And we get Ellie Gibson back and she says that, you know, she likes the new Alien game and she really enjoyed the original Alien game. And before she said on the PlayStation, I was like, ooh, she mean like the 8-bit home computers Alien game? No, no, she means Alien Trilogy. Because yeah. I, was thought, I thought she was going proper retro because there were a couple of different Alien games that came out yeah. in the 8-bit era, including, for the Atari, a borderline Pac-Man clone? Yeah, it is. It's, it's an unfortunate turn of phrase to call that the original Alien game. But I suppose, like, I mean, some people just use that term to be like the old one that came out on the PlayStation. The original one that came out on the PlayStation. Also, lest we forget, Luke, this is a video game TV show. One take. <laughs> we haven't got time to fact check things after they've said it. Or even allow them to go back and correct themselves. Yeah. TikTok. <laughs> I've got eight different segments to film with you now. I can't, I've got to get this done. I need to get down to the vaults to scare the shit out of people with someone with an alien costume. Obviously, GoldenEye is the best movie tie-in game of all time, and it didn't even come out when the movie came out. It came out like two years later. Um, and a big part of that is because, you know what? Almost nothing about what makes GoldenEye the game good is what makes GoldenEye the movie good. In fact, GoldenEye the movie isn't even that good. Goldeneye, the game is better. So here it is. Let's talk about it. Uh, the debut on this episode of Chris Bond, uh, who, is, as I mentioned earlier, is someone else who's very part of the production team, and I'm, I'm working with him on a show. It's amazing. Like, I hadn't spoken to him in ages, and all of a sudden, like, Simon was like, hey, this I with Chris. I was like, oh, Chris, cool. And I had a chat with him recently. But it's kind of great to see Chris here, because this is, you know, he's working with Jinx, and 
he and Adam are really like the, the figureheads of this show. So I like that, that Chris gets his opportunity as well to be on screen at the same time as that. And he's very good at it as well. Yeah, and also, you know, it's kind of funny because his name and the game, GoldenEye. Because, yeah. you know, Chris. Yeah. 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 And like he is here to say that this is the best movie tie-in game of all time. And I guess there's a very good argument to be made that that is true. Um, trying to think off the top of my head. Is there, I mean, I, I would always go back for Alien 3, obvs. And Terminator on the Mega Drive. I'm the 11th fastest player in the world at that game. I would say that as we stand now in 2023, Alien Isolation might actually be better. Purely because first-person shooters have surpassed GoldenEye, both graphically and gameplay-wise. Multiplayer experiences have surpassed GoldenEye, both graphically and gameplay-wise. I still don't think anything has surpassed Alien Isolation for that style of game and that representation of that universe. Can I counter? Is Alien Isolation a movie tie-in? Yes. Or is this more like Insomniac Spider-Man game? It is an alien game made from the alien IP. For me, a movie tie-in is based on a movie. This is based on a side quest that has been made up from an original movie. Like, The Warriors is a movie tie-in game. My counter-argument would be the fact that they actually sold the game on physical disc edition with content that allowed you to actually play on the original ship as the original cast of characters. And because you have that, and then you have the story that follows immediately afterwards... I would say it's a tie-in game. Supposing that with that argument, I, I think that is fair. Like the DLC certainly does make it a movie tie-in as opposed to what it could arguably be, which is fan fiction. If it was only content that was only available as aftermarket paid DLC, I would say it wasn't count. But because both you and I own a physical disc copy that is called the Nostromo edition, even if we then had to, you know, it downloaded from a code afterwards it was still physically sold on the box mm -hmm. as containing that content i think that's fair that's a good argument i do like goldeneye i think a lot of this is nostalgia talking yeah i i've gone back and i've played it because obviously i've got it on game pass i've got it on you know switch i don't enjoy playing it that much anymore maybe if i could get enough people together to play the local couch i would but also I think there are better games to play on a couch together now. Uh, yeah, a lot of this is nostalgia talking. And maybe you could make the argument that GoldenEye is the best movie tie-in game up until this point because it's the only one that isn't a big bag of shite. Yeah. It kind of bucked the trend. Movie tie-ins had been this thing. They were usually just like amorphous platformers that were just very badly put together with difficult second levels that you can't get past. But this was actually a good game. I felt like this was a good game first that then had the GoldenEye thing attached to it, as opposed to being sort of the other way around. So I, I think that's why GoldenEye lives in the memory of being a good movie tie-in game. Because it's, it's, it's the only one for decades that was good. I do disagree a little bit with what Chris says, where he's just like, what makes GoldenEye the game good isn't what makes GoldenEye the movie good. And then he says, GoldenEye the movie isn't even that good. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa Chris, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pump the brakes there. <laughs> but also, I'm thinking, well, what makes GoldenEye the game good? Outside of gameplay. Just outside of the core gameplay mechanic. And I'm like, well, let's look. Uh, locations, where did they come from? The movie. The movie. Uh, the whole character premise. The movie. Uh, the set pieces. All of the set pieces. The movie. The gadgets. 
the movie. If you did strip everything away from GoldenEye that was part of GoldenEye the movie, I think it would be lacking. This is a very good multiplayer. I do think that the movie has aged better than the game. Yes. Having replayed the game recently and rewatched the movie recently. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. My favourite movie time of all time was Goldeneye on the N64. That game, it, it does things it shouldn't do. It actually follows the narrative of the movie without being dreadful, which is really, really hard to do. At the time, the graphics were amazing. It, it is the grandfather of modern first-person shooters, and it, and it still plays well today. It looks rubbish, but it's, it plays brilliantly. Steve McNeil's also big up on Goldeneye. Yeah, like, I don't want to disagree with Steve either here, but I think it's unfair to call this the grandfather of modern first-person shooters. I had it down as the uncle. Yeah, it, it is certainly, it is a relative, for sure. Ooh, ooh, it's the nephew of Quake, and Quake's granddad is Wolfenstein 3D, and its dad is Doom. Yes. So, without Wolfenstein, there'd be no Doom. Without Doom, there'd be no Quake. And, arguably, without Quake, and without the lineage that Quake had, I don't know that there would be a Goldeneye. Because Quake ups the ante from what Doom had done by looking around. Also, lest we forget, Goldeneye was originally a non-rail shooter. Yeah, I would disagree slightly by saying it is the grandfather of, of modern-day shooters. It's just old. He does say it looks rubbish but plays brilliantly, which I'm like, yeah, it does. It does play brilliantly. I still think even playing it now with a modern N64 controller, I'm still like, my, my control scheme tastes have moved on. Yeah. We've probably just alienated <laughs> at least 50% of our listener base. Great stuff. Lots of the early Star Wars games were great. The flight sim game, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, was an amazing game because it really portrayed to you the experience of, of being a, you know, an X-Wing or a TIE Fighter pilot. Uh, um, in, a, in a massive galactic war. I mean, I think Keith here is particularly kind about Star Wars games because I think there have probably been more bad Star Wars games than there have been good Star Wars games. Grant, he highlights some of the better ones here, the arcade game, X-Wing, TIE Fighter and things like that, but I think there are more bad wars than oh, good. I think it's about 50-50. I, I don't know, dude, because there are a ton of just cheap shovelware PC games. True, but there's also three supers on the SNES. Mm, there are there are three supers on the SNES, but there was also like three, maybe four, five bad Star Wars platformers on the NES. No, some of those were fine because they were basically related to Super Star Wars. Uh, no, uh, no, no, like the the original, like the eight bit versions, and then you can go back even further. The Atari uh, Star Wars games were pretty bad, but were they bad or just bad for the time? No, no, I think they were, just, they were bad at the time. Yeah, okay. I think there were a lot of really good Star Wars games, but because a lot of them were on PC, and and also because they're licensed games and therefore aren't appearing on lots of compilations or Evercade or anything mm. like that. Maybe some of them get a little left behind. And I, I agree with you, but like there's, you know, you've got those sort of five games there, but among those five games, there are 20 shovelware games that have also been released that are all bad at that same period of time. Mm. They're just no one, no one talks about anymore because they were bad shovelware games and they so dirt cheap. I would have to review the footage. <laughs> I would have to go back and take a look at the list. There have been some really awful movie times. I think a particular low point for me was uh, Battleship. So that was like the game of the movie of the game. 
and somehow they've managed to like make a video game of like a 70 year old pen and paper game and make it even duller. I didn't know this game existed. I had no idea they made a game of the movie of Battleship. The main thing I can remember about Battleships, the movie of the game, is I didn't watch it in the cinema. I watched it at home. But I walked out of the room in disgust to make a cup of tea when they had a fucking battleship handbrake turn using the anchor. Because I'm like, okay, there's a lot of disbelief I'm suspending for this movie. But the fact you've just done that with a ship and the ship hasn't immediately fractured into a million pieces with all hands on board lost is a step too far. I think Battleship is a wonderful snapshot of Hasbro at that period of time and the hubris of a couple of Transformers movies doing well. Because Hasbro looked at the success of the Bayformers movies and were like, for fucking anything that we make will be a billion dollar movie, right? License out everything. And they did. They had all of their board games that were licensed out for people to make movies on. They were licensed out more of their toy lines mm -hmm. for people to make movies on. Because they just thought, well, we've got the winning formula here. Just make a movie that looks like, and let's be honest, Battleship is intentionally designed to look like a Bayformers movie. And they thought it would all work. And it didn't. No. Because not every movie is, is Transformers. Sometimes it's Battleship with Rihanna in it. And it's a bad movie. And it, it is an incredible snapshot. And Hasbro often go through these moments where they're like, oh, we've become untouchable again. And we'll make any old movie and it will make loads of money. But, oh, no, G.I. Joe didn't make any money. Oh, no, Battleship didn't make any money. Oh, no, these Transformers movies aren't making any anymore. What do we do? We'll make another Transformers movie. Hang on, that one's done well. Brilliant. We'll now make another G.I. Joe movie. We'll make it a connected shared universe. And we can also add in these other things. Put Mask in there. Oh, we hang on, Mask, now you're talking. Because we own all of these things and that means people will love it, surely, right? I've not seen the latest Transformers movie. I know how things go. But I did like Bumblebee. Bumblebee's great. Bumblebee's great because Bumblebee just gives people the Transformers they remember. Bumblebee's also, it's a, it's a standalone movie that's not trying to be part of a, a franchise. And it's a, and it's a real middle finger to Michael Bay who said that those designs would never work on the big screen. But of course, they're contractually obliged of the fact they can't overwrite what Michael Bay did. And I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed with... Uh, Rise of the Beasts that they leapt straight to the 90s and I'm like oh you could have done another one at 1989 into 1990 you could yeah. have given yourself more time to play with just one last note and the only positive thing I can think about to do with the Battleships movie I've nothing about the game absolutely nothing I couldn't even be asked to look it up I'm just like this game means nothing to me is the fact that they did make the alien missiles look like the pegs in Battleships and I'm that like, is good it is shoehorned in but it doesn't feel shoehorned in, so I'll allow it. I'm pretty sure around this time as well as when Ridley Scott was going to do the Monopoly movie. That was one of the things they had announced for this. There was going to be a Hungry Hungry Hippos movie as well. I, it's also a bit of a shame that they didn't use this opportunity to rag on Street Fighter the movie, the game. I quite enjoyed the Ghostbusters game from not too long ago. I think that kind of, it, was, it wasn't perfect, but it had the voice actors in it, it had all of the right iconography, uh, and it was the first time, you know, in comparison to say like the Atari Ghostbusters game that, I mean, there's an example of a game that's terrible. I mean, you play as the logo. I mean, that's, that's nuts. Oh, now we're talking. But now we're talking. This is why, you know, aside from all the alien stuff, I guess this is kind of why this is here, right? Yeah, it's not a perfect game. I wouldn't know, I've never played it. I really wish there was an easier way for me and you to sit and play games, because I actually think a really fun time would just be me and you sat together with you playing a game that 
like like this or like Alien Isolation that you've never played and just having a chat and chatting with the listeners and stuff like that because Ghostbusters the video game is the only time Ghostbusting has been accurately presented in a video game. You snare them, you wear them down, you trap them, you bag them, you pick it up. Up until that point, they'd had variations on that in the original Ghostbusters game, in the Game Boy Ghostbusters game as well for Ghostbusters 2. But this was the first time they'd done it properly. And of course, they advanced it. They gave you slime blowers. They gave you different variations on the proton pack. There was an escalation, an upgrade path for the pack. But they got the gang back together. That's the key to this. They got Harold. They got Ernie. They got Dan. They half got Bill Murray. At this point in time, where we were in the, you know, in, a, in the Ghostbusters franchise, there hadn't been a movie for a decade, 15 years, but there had been lots of talk of there being another movie for the last decade, 15 years. This really felt like this is the best we're going to get. I think we had reached a point in the fandom where I was like, it's never going to happen. We're never going to get Ghostbusters 3. So when they announced this and they announced that the original cast are coming back for it and they showed you the trailers that had the music from the movies as well that really you know the great score and everything you're like this is this is it this is ghostbusters 3 i've never played this game i skipped this console generation i just watched it on youtube i just i just watched this as a movie oh yeah because they put all the cutscenes and a few of the interstitial scenes from the game together yeah it actually hangs pretty well as a movie hangs pretty well as a movie I, if I was to be sort of a hypercritical thing, I really wish it w- I wasn't rookie. I wish I could have just remove that. I, I, what I want to be as a Ghostbuster. I get why they did it. It, I, 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 it makes so much more sense for you to have an avatar in as opposed to playing one of the the four. But it is also it's like, who's this fifth guy? I don't give a shit about this guy. I want to be. I want to be Peter. That's my guy. I want to be Ray. But I do like the fact that they get around the whole thing of like, no, no names. Not after what happened to the last one. (laughs) But obviously we get the core four back, but also not just the core four. Bill Atherton's back as Walter Peck. Annie Potts. And Max von Sydow. I see the evil of the times to come. Three more faraway wars will come. And they will tarnish even the undisputed glory of the first three. Because in the firehouse is a painting of Vigo the Carpathian He's that there. will smack talk you if you interact with it. He is right there. Like, there's so many, like, incredible Easter eggs to walk around the firehouse and, and see and, and find upon. It reminds me a lot of the IDW Ghostbusters run yeah. that they did, which is where, like, like Eric and, and the team would spend, you know, painstaking hours drawing backgrounds that had details that you as a Ghostbusters fan would be like, oh, cool, that's this. Oh, that's amazing, that's this. And Rookie has become part of, like, Ghostbusters canon. Rookie has become a character within the Ghostbusters comic book series. He's in Ghostbusters the board game. Shite though it is, and it is fucking shit, he is a character within there. And I should know, I spent a fuckload of money on the Kickstarter to get him. Me too, and I've still not played it, but when I want to play it, I'm going to use the fan revised rules that have. It's so much better. It's yeah. so, so much better. It was There's a new the... version of it that's just come out as well. Yeah. I, I, honestly, when that fan edit came out, because like, me and my friends have only played our version of, of house rules with it, because the rules itself that it come with are broken. You can lose that game in two turns. Amazing. It's absolutely, it was never play tested. Could not have been tested. 
Shame on you, Cryptozoic. Shame on you. But I really like Ghostbusters, the video game. Yeah, I I, I take some exception with uh, Chris there being like, you know, it's the first time you get to play as the Ghostbusters as opposed to playing as the logo. That's not true. There's the map screen, which is what he's talking about in what he shows. There's the driving section. And then there's the actual trapping the ghosts, which all seems to happen outdoors for some reason. I guess money was tight. No one could afford indoor ghosts anymore. They all had to have outdoor ghosts at the end of the garden. And also then you have the four scenes. You've got the stairs going up to the uh, in the uh, Spook Central and the battle with Gozer at the top of the building. So there are sort of five sections of the movie. However, the idea that you travel around the screen as the logo is just the internet accepted, that's what the Atari 2600 game is. And it's not just the Atari 2600, it was ported to multiple different... I systems. first played it on the CPC 464. Exactly. I played it on the Commodore 64. Yeah. Like, it's like, the, it's, that is just, that is what this game looks like. I played this on the Master System, because the Master System is exactly the same version. Mega Drive is a completely different game, but you get to play as the Ghostbusters. You do get to play as the actual Ghostbusters. There's as you're a, doing Ghostbusters 2. Yep, yeah, which was a UK only, or Europe only, rather. Not on the Game Boy. No, but like the NES one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we, uh, there's been a fan edit of the Ghostbusters game as well, the Mega Drive one, which adds Winston into it. Yay! Hey! Justice for Ernie. I, I don't begrudge Chris for, for that error, because that just was accepted internet law about the original Ghostbusters game, you play as the logo. And a lot of that comes from AVGN's review of Ghostbusters, yeah. one of his earliest videos that he put out. Thankfully, this is not a game that is difficult to get hold of. You can get it for the Switch. You can buy it pretty cheap for current PlayStation and Xbox generations. It works on both via backwards compatibility. You can get it on the PS4. Uh, it's, it's still a really fun game. My... It's still a really fun game. It uh, adds a few fan films into canon. There is a letter, uh, like a picture on the wall, sent to Egon Spengler yeah. from his nephew, That's right. who's from the Return of the Ghostbusters fan film, which I popped huge for. There's references to real. There's references to extreme. They couldn't get Rick Moranis or Sigourney Weaver on board in time. There wasn't the role for them. There wasn't the place. They couldn't reach an agreement. But there are references to both of them. Uh, Lewis has an out-to-lunch sign. His desk is there. It, and his, his jumpsuit's hanging behind. It's full of lots of loving notes. It's a really fun game. It does tie back to the first film and the second. But it is a natural evolution. A couple of things that I take issue with. One is... There's a very convoluted story behind the Ghostbusters video game, including how it almost never came out, uh, scenes that were cut because studios went bankrupt and money was lost, and also Bill Murray is barely there. If they were to do a proper remaster, not what they've done now, but a proper remaster, port it to the latest Unreal Engine, get a bit more detail in the characters, make everything in-game engine, not pre-rendered sequences... Get Bill back in to record his lines. Get him to give a shit like he did in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah, like as fans, we were kind of accepting that we're not going to get Ghostbusters 3. Bill had reached that point long before we had. And he was done with Ghostbusters. And like, you know, this meant a lot to fans. This didn't really mean that much to Bill. I'm glad... He's more at peace with the franchise now. And also he knows he's not carrying the franchise anymore. I mean, we know they're all in the new movie. You know, it's pretty much confirmed at this point. 
but they're also not the focus. If anything, the footage yeah. we've seen of the Ecto tearing around New York with some stunt doubles in, which I think is a very clever way of avoiding the difficulties having to film with the main cast in New York, the focus is on the new generation. Which is what they always wanted. Yeah. Like that was, you know, if they weren't going to be able to do Ghostbusters 3 as they wanted to do Ghostbusters 3, particularly because if they'd have got to do it in the 90s, by the time they got into the 2000s, that was what the accepted rule was. We can't do this anymore. We're too old for this now. We've got to hand to the next generation. And if you want to see part of what Aykroyd and Ramis had in mind for their Ghostbusters 3, for many versions of Ghostbusters 3 and some early versions of the first Ghostbusters, you can play this game. There's elements of the original appearance of Shandor as Goza. There's alternate dimensions, Hell Dimensions, which was part of Ghostbusters 3 Hellbent. Yeah, exactly. That is all in this game. And you still get to fight Stay Puft. Yeah. And it's actually a really, really cool, fun scene. You don't get to drive the Ectomobile, but you do get to do an escort quest with it, which is actually also pretty cool. Yeah. This has now just turned into a sales pitch for this game. But really, especially with the amount of sales going on at the moment, check it out if you can. It will be fun. And if you don't have the patience to check it out, check out the, uh, the movie version on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. So we do see some solid movie tie-ins, maybe not spectacular ones all the time. I think for something that's really, really gripped me, something that's been really good and really caught the atmosphere of a film, you have to go back a bit. I really, really enjoyed the point-and-click adventure for Blade Runner, which didn't come out at around the same time as the film, which again is a benefit for the developers, but it really captured the atmosphere and flavour of the film. And Jane's here to talk about Blade Runner, another very, very good uh, movie tie-in game that you and I have discussed previously. Actually, I think I prefer Blade Runner to Goldeneye. So yeah, that's, that's probably what I would have picked. Definitely play the original. Don't play the remaster. Night Dive absolutely fucked that to the point where they had to include the original under emulation with the game because it's like, yeah, we really bollocks this. Yeah, I mean, Blade Runner seems to be on a bit of a resurgence at the moment as well, because the tabletop RPG is out, and that's getting all of its various expansions as well. And there's a new game. Yeah, you can also actually see Jane playing the Blade Runner tabletop on outside Xbox. It's on my to-watch list. But that new game, because it also looks to be kind of a uh, detective-type game, an actual going about going through, looking for evidence, looking for clues, and I'm like, ooh... It's not a cover-based shooter. I'm definitely on board for this. Computers and consoles weren't really fast enough to make a a third-person action shooter Blade Runner game, so they had to make a story-based, sedate, uh, point-and-click puzzle game where you have time to sort of absorb the world and and absorb the setting. Um, So I would say the the old point-and-click adventures, I think we should make more point-and-clicks of films. I don't really agree with what Steve has to say here either. This argument that uh, computers and consoles weren't really fast enough to make a third-person action shooter like Blade Runner. That's just not true. Maybe it's because you and I have spent the last three or so years covering this Mm. period of time. No, do you know what? I'm actually... Because what, Blade Runner was 93, 94? 95? Uh, the the game? Yeah. Oh, no, it was late. That was like 96, 97? We got it very late in our timeline. Oh, it was 97, you're right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to agree with him on the caveat that I don't think any cover-based third-person shooter they made would have looked as good as this. No, it, it wouldn't have done, but that's, I don't think that's the point he's making. The idea that, that consoles weren't fast enough to make a Blade Runner action game. 
But I, but I would uh, the argument I would make is that I don't want a Blade Runner action game. Blade Runner is a point-and-click story. Blade Runner is a, a detective story. So that is not an action-based game. But I I don't agree with it being f- computers and consoles were not fast enough to be able to do this. Tomb Raider was out by that point. One point I think we both can agree with them on. We should make more point-and-clicks of films. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm especially looking forward to Oppenheimer, the adventure game. The key to making a good licensed game is if you've got to love your license, which makes it very difficult for a lot of licensed games because they're coming out before even the thing that they're licensed of has come out. So how can you love what you haven't seen? I think you know you get a game like Alien Isolation and that's built on a genuine passion for the source material. So I think, I think that's what you should try to do. If you can't do that, however, just make a good game. You know, no one's, you know, it used to be back in the day, people used to make platformers like uh, Aladdin on the Genesis, you know? Would that have mattered if it was just some other thing? Did it need to be Aladdin to be good? Make it good and it won't matter whether or not the, even the license is good, you know, because you'll have made something that people enjoy playing. Now comes an entire section that I'm a little bit mm, over because I get what they're saying, which is, does a good game need the license because they talk about the passion for the source subject like we get with alien isolation people cared about this franchise when they made this game they harken back to aladdin on the mega drive and saying would it have mattered if it was just some other thing and i'm thinking yeah because the license was what elevated it above every other runny jumpy platformer of the time i think back to our man jazz rignall oh look another platformer it would have just been lost amongst those the argument i would possibly make there is that aladdin is earthworm jim like the animations are the same the action is the same and the style is the same so if you'd have just done a different earthworm jim style or you know a, a, a new original character but with that it would have had the comparisons to earthworm jim at the same way that aladdin did but it still would have been a fun game. But would it have been as successful and as fondly remembered? Well, that's, well, that's it. It depends on how if we can get something that is as good as Earthworm Jim is as a character. I mean, Earthworm Jim was not just a game. It was a game with other things tied into it from a fairly early point. Well, it started as a toy. It was, yeah. a, to- it was a toy that had a video game made for it to promote the toy line. Yeah, exactly. So even then, Earthworm Jim actually doesn't hold up as an example because it's more than just a game with a character. It's a franchise, much like Aladdin was. But then it's still, it's a good game. Sonic is a good game that launches a franchise. True. Mar- Mario is a good game that launches a franchise. I th- a game being good first with a good character and a, a good world to dive into can launch a franchise at the back of it. I, you know, like I it, would agree, but I just, I guess I don't know what, like I look at Aladdin and so much of what makes Aladdin good, other than just the core gameplay, which is brilliant, is you're running through the streets of Agrabah, the music's playing, the genie's around. It's got all those things that made Aladdin the movie great as part of it. The animation is beautiful. You know, okay, yeah, so Earthworm Jim. Maybe they could have just done it with Earthworm Jim, but it would need to be a really, really potent mix for it to have worked because for every Earthworm Jim, there's a Bubsy. But but the game's good. Bubsy's a bad game. Yeah. Aladdin's a good game. So if you had a good platforming game, then people would have yeah, still liked it. It's a, good, it's a good platform. Game. I guess. I but, think, but Aladdin, yeah. stand, Aladdin stands up as an example of this is a good movie tie-in game because it's a good game to begin with. Yeah. And then you put, you know, the Aladdin animations. On. It's worked with the Disney animators to make it look as good as it does. It's got the music and everything. So it's what mm. it is is a good movie tie-in. But you strip away the the Goldeneye argument earlier. Yeah. You strip away the movie tie-in. It's still a good game at its core. 
it just might not have caught on as much because it oh, wouldn't have had the movie to hook itself it, onto. It depends on how much marketing was put behind it, yeah. Yeah. The entirely valid point that we've also talked about, I think, before, set the game in the world of the film, don't necessarily make it the plot of the film. Blade Runner's a good example of that, yeah. Because also film plots don't always work as video game plots. because they're movie plots. And vice versa. Uh, the Blade Runner game plot would not have worked as a film. No. And then we get a little clip of the actual DLC we mentioned earlier from Alien Isolation of my namesake, before he's killed anyone, <laughs> probably. I'd have a look around first, see if there's anything that might help. You never know. It's no secret that the volume to quality ratio for film tie-ins is uneven, to say the least. That's what makes Alien Isolation such a pleasant surprise. While it's not strictly a tie-in, it does a masterful job of matching the tension, dread, and claustrophobia of its cinematic sibling. A great deal of this is down to the sheer unpredictability of the titular xenomorph. In the film, you never quite knew where she was going to pop up next, and thanks to some incredible AI, the same is true of the game. Although the main story presents a sizable challenge, the ultimate test of your skill can be found in the form of survivor mode. Survivor mode whittles the isolation experience down to its bare essentials, a brutal test of wits as you attempt to evade the alien's clutches as quickly and efficiently as possible. Mm, sounds like perfect video game nation challenge material to me. That makes his appearance on the show here to kind of give like some thoughts on Alien Isolation very briefly anyway. This is not like a Dan's review of the game because Aoife kind of covered that portion of the show. Dan's more or less here just to give us his thoughts on the show and then set up our Games Master Challenge for this episode. What are we playing, Dan? I've convinced four other Video Game Nation regulars to take me on in the ultimate Survivor Challenge. The rules are simple. Fastest escapee wins. But there's a twist. A drooling six-foot killing machine of a twist to be exact. Who will live? Who will die? Who will need a change of pants? There's only one way to find out. I said to you before we started recording, and I'll say it again now, I would love to recreate this challenge. I've got a few ideas in mind of how we could put an original twist on it that wouldn't involve having someone in a xenomorph suit stood next to the competitors. But this is a really, really fun challenge. The way it's edited can be a little disjointed, but let's break down the basics. You've got a whole bunch of people we've already seen. They're going to play the time trial mode, essentially, of Alien Isolation. Meanwhile, a person in an alien suit is stood next to them, occasionally fondling them, and getting right in their face. Putting them off. Yeah. Little distraction thing. It is the alien equivalent of a spoonful of hot sauce. Yeah, and what we have here is, quickest out of the game wins. And, that, and that's similar, you get as many tries as you can, but this alien is going to be here trying to distract you the whole time. We've got a lot of faces that we've seen throughout the episode, so Chris and Dan and Aoife and Steve Hogarty, but also... Other regular features, regular, Gav Murphy, who I first encountered through Official Nintendo Magazine on the Official Nintendo Magazine podcast, and instantly fell in love with him and became a fan of his, so it's kind of nice now that when I do see him at events, it's we can have a nice little chat and stuff, because we, we've bumped into each other a number of times over the years. And in that sort of like bizarre way that, that life often works, the reason why I know the people that made this show is because my wife went to university with them. 
the reason I know Gav as well as I do is because someone who I wrote for a movie website that he was also writing for went to university with Gav. Wow. It's weird how these sort of worlds work. One of my co-hosts that I do now went to university with the AE Podcast Boys and also uh, Tom Scar. But I love how we meet all these people and they've all got their different approaches and Chris is like, right, let's do it. Dan Mayer's like, right, here we go. Steve is like, I've got a tactic. I'm going to ignore the fact there's an alien right next to me. That's a solid tactic. You can't argue with it. Eva's like, I've got to pee, which is a whole new element of danger, but is up for it. And then we get Gav, who's just like, it's not funny. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) And he just says, this isn't how the game is designed to be played. Maybe not, but it's fun. Eva's also got another great tactic to get through this challenge, which is if she gets nervous, she just sings the Pokemon theme. And that Pokemon theme is going to get her through this. I want to be the very best that no one ever was. It is the most beautiful, bizarre image. And we can play the audio, but really you need to see it, of someone very nervously playing a video game, singing the Pokemon theme whilst... The ultimate in space terror is kind of there pouring quietly and tilting its head. I, I agree with what you said about like it being a slightly disjointed edit because this isn't like Games Master or you know Gamesville or whatever it is of just like watching Gav do his run, Steve do his run, Dan do his run, Chris do his run, Aoife do her run. It is all of them doing their runs at the same time just interspersed with each other, which does make it much pacier but it also means it is slightly more disjointed. I both would have liked to have seen more of the runs because, hey, there's a reason we did 130-odd episodes on a video game challenge show, but also I appreciated that really the most important thing here wasn't actually the game. It was the reactions and the alien fucking around and finding out. Sorry, I didn't go very well. It's because the alien was rubbing my neck. Ah, stop looking at me. No! Gav's just like, I just wanted to stop looking at me. Like, while he's focusing on the screen, he's like, I just wanted to stop looking at me. But, mate, it's got no eyes. Aoife <laughs> is getting tickled by the alien. Chris is getting strangled by the alien. Dan at one point forgets to reload and gets killed. And it just then cuts back to Aoife going, oh. Pokemon, can I catch them all? This is terrible. <laughs> that wasn't fair at all. So we get to the end and Dan's like, well, I'd like to say it was a close run competition, but Chris won, basically. Yeah. We all sucked. Chris won. One of us didn't even make it back. Chris does it on his first try, two minutes and 18 seconds, while it takes Gav three tries to make it to the end, two minutes 32. Steve takes him three tries, four minutes and two. Aoife, with four bites of the apple, does it in four and a half minutes, which he's very pleased about. But Dan did not finish. But Dan's not completely out yet because he's like well next time they should do it for real i'm a born survivor and it's instantly (laughs) killed by the xenomorph that's been loitering for the entire episode i think it's safe to say that alien survival mode really brings out the worst in people but so long as you bring a change of underwear you can mostly avoid that problem mostly anyways that is it for this week i'll see you guys next time when hopefully they'll stick me in a less scary location or at least give me directions on how to get out of this one hello Uh uh-oh Anyone have a flamethrower? 
And that's it for this week's show. Next week, it's going to be Shadow of Mordor. Which is one of the episodes I've got queued up to watch, because I'm like, oh, I remember that game. That'll be a fun little watch. So there you go. That is Video Game Nation. Uh, Actually, this is your first experience watching the show. Uh, What did you make of it? Of the shows I've not really seen before, so we're discounting Consolvania, certainly. And I'm discounting uh, Video Gaiden because I've seen Consolvania. So, you know, I'd seen Video Gaiden. I knew how it worked. This is my favourite so far. This is the one where I'm immediately like, I want to watch more of this. I want to I want to check the rest of this out. I think it's the one that, whilst it is obviously the most recent at this time, is the one that's aged the best. The format is kind of timeless. There's no humour here, really, for the most part, that has aged like a fine murder. There's a few little jokes, a few little facts. There's some talking heads giving opinions. Don't agree with them all, but I respect the fact that they're wrong. I just ended up leaving this episode just looking forward to talking about it with you. I'm just like, I'm looking forward to watching more of these episodes and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about it. And I'm looking forward to encouraging people who listen, especially if they haven't seen it. Go and check out this episode. Despite it being late in season one, it's actually a fairly good introduction to the entire concept of the show. And if you like it, there are plenty out there to check out. How about you? I I was concerned putting this on the list for two reasons. Number one... I was worried that I was worried that there wasn't gonna be a lot to say about it. Because like it is just one game per episode, I was like, oh, maybe that'll actually quite limit us on what we can cover for it. And it'll then just be an interesting look at a format style. As it turns out, I didn't need to worry about it because it's a show that really does pack itself out to make sure that it fills that half an hour perfectly so. The other one I was worried that I wasn't going to like it as much the second time around and I was going to upset my friends. And I'd have to tell Adam that, actually, by the way, I think your show wasn't very good. Thankfully, I think it is very good. So So what you're saying is I should edit out all the bits where you said it was shit. Yeah, yeah, we can cut all those bits out. I'll censor those with like Sonic the Hedgehog sound effects. So it'll be fine. But I, 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 I really do like this. And what I like about Video Game Nation more now and I sort of appreciate more now is looking at it compared to what it was competing against. This looks at what YouTube channels are doing with video game content and be like, well, we can't do that. So let's do this. And what they make is a TV show. And it's a great TV show in that as well. And, I, you know, it's a kind of a shame that it was on Challenge because this was a period of time when Challenge were like, hey, maybe we'll be more than just episodes of Bullseye will commission a wrestling based show because we've also got rights to show professional wrestling yeah and hey why don't you make us a a video game show and we'll try and be more than just this but by the time we get to sort of 2016 they're like actually we just want to show episodes of Bullseye if you don't mind and the the you know the end of Video Game Nation spells the end for WrestleTalk TV as it was in that current state, and in doing so, gives birth to what WrestleTalk is now. And without the Challenge TV deal ending when it did, I might not be here in this capacity today. So this is the equivalent of the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. I guess so, in a way, yeah. And. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be doing Dara O'Brien's Go 8 bits. And what is interesting, because obviously Steve McNeil is part of this show, but the development of Go 8 bits is kind of born out of the failures of that first version of Video Game Nation. Wow, is this like kind of like the prime of modern video game <laughs> television? I guess it kind of is in a way, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to just read out this last thing before we get into this, because I, I was kind of, you know, 
searching around to find out what people were, were writing about Video Game Nation at the time. I found this Den of Geek article. It's a great article, isn't it? It is. But there's a couple of things in there that I, I really uh, quite enjoyed. Funny enough, they actually referenced this episode in particular uh, as one of like the standout episodes that they remember. But I wanted to read out this part here. Undeniably, the most famous gaming show in UK TV is 90s Channel 4 offering Dames Master. Presented by Dominic Diamond, a man with a name that sounded like he should have been a Super Mario villain and a digitized Patrick Moore, Games Master exhibited many attributes that Video Game Nation would successfully emulate. A mixture of reviews, challenges, and trivia, only with a truckload of joystick is penis jokes thrown in. Coming off the back of the popularity of Sega's Mega Drive console and the likes of the Amiga, Games Master managed to last seven seasons between 1992 and 1998. Suffering the axe, before Sony got in on the act with the PlayStation and the internet boom. What? <laughs> Bearing in mind, PlayStation appears in Games Master's timeline in Series 4. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When was that published? Well, 2016. Oh, so too early for chat GTP. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanted to read that little bit in there as well, because I was, re- I was reading through, I was like, oh, Games Master, I wonder... I mean, but apart from that, it's a great article. Apart from that, it's a very good article. Yeah. Uh, they conclude here, Games Master and Video Game Nation present two impressive bookends in the spectrum of UK gaming shows. There have been numerous stabs at creating TV shows related to gaming in intervening years, but the results haven't been anything to write home about, and we should know that's what the last 15 weeks have been about. I do wonder, would things have ended differently for Video Game Nation? Not necessarily the old Wrestle Talk, but for Video Game Nation... If they had not even been on BBC Two, I'm not nearly stupid enough to say this would have gone on BBC One because BBC One doesn't do video games. Unless you're Dara mm. doing a bit about Metal Gear Solid on Life from the Apollo, which I still think is like a definite high achievement whether he realises it or not. Even just BBC Three, mm-hmm. maybe E4, because they were around at that time. Yeah. Just to be on a channel that's like the letters or the numbers of which are associated with the core terrestrial broadcast. 100%, because the reason why Video Game Nation goes off the air is because Challenge decided we don't want this anymore. And that was it. That, that's, that spells the end of Video Game Nation, unfortunately. And Jinx TV then moved on and started doing other projects instead. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, a very special episode next week, is a bit of a prelude to the episode that will be coming after it, which will be Dara O'Brien's Go 8-Bit, We're going to be chatting with Steve McNeil about the origins of Go 8-Bit and how it went from being an Edinburgh fringe comedy show to a kind of touring show that they were doing around London to getting on broadcast TV. It's a hell of a tale. Hell of a tale. We're going to be chatting with Steve about that before we dive into Dara O'Brien's Go 8-Bit the week after. But if you want to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter at UnderConsolePod, on Instagram at Under.Console, and on Threads. And on Threads. With the same name. And you can send us an email to feedback at UnderConsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of gaming, old and new, maybe take a run at Tetris on the original Game Boy. See how you can do on the score. You can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found on our social media and in the show notes. 
And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where you'll get access to UCN, our monthly community show. And at the £5 level, you get next week's show one week early and ad free. But if you're one of those £10 backers, you get your name read out in the credits like these fine folk. Adam D, Adam Warrington, Andrew, Andy Smith, Arcadia Wild Bill, Chris, Chrissy Two Sticks, Colin, David Palmer, Gordon, Aiken, Gordon, Brands, Gordon, Dempster, Harriet, Manga Girl. I am Cheadle, Ian Roberts, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Joe Mitchell, Kevin Kylie, Lawrence, Link, Mark, Matty Boo, Misha, Nick, Phil, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, Rich, Richard Downer, Richard Major, Sean Dunn, Selena, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, The Amazing Cliff, Tom Dylan McEvoy, Tom S, UBD, William Coddingham, Xanderthal, and Zach. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.